Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 224 of the Tech Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Full Spectrum Coaching, an interview with Julie Yakinich. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, we've confessed to our listeners on this podcast that as East Coast guys, we didn't know what health coaches were, and we didn't have a lot of faith that they would be an important part of a healing journey. And we have now done a 180. We feel, quite frankly, that a health coach is a vital part, maybe even the most vital part of a team of people that you have to assemble to assist you on your healing journey. And this is a health coach that I think is a model for all others. Rich, one of the things we hear most often from people is that they've been sick for too long or they don't have the money to help themselves heal. Julie was sick for almost 20 years and was bed bound and was able to treat with modest resources. And within two years, she got herself into remission and has been there for the last six years. So this is a story of hope and inspiration. And Julie provides us with a wide variety of tools she's learned to help herself reach and stay in remission. Matt, this is a health coach that works at least in part with Dr. Casey Kelly. And I expected that this would be a high level interview and I was not disappointed. This is a brilliant woman who was really honest, really open. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Julie Yakinich to the Take Bootcamp podcast. Hey, Julie, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rich. I'm happy to be here. And we, are, we are, well, thank you for saying hi to Matthew too. He is here, but I'm not going to let him talk early on because there's just so much that I need to explore with you. So let's begin, Julie. So uh, one of the things that I think is really cool about you is uh, you work with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Dr. Casey Kelly. So talk to us about uh, where you live and where you work and uh, what kind of cool things you're doing in the Lyme community. Yeah, um, I live in Chicago and uh, that's where Dr. Casey Kelly is located here in Chicago at Case Integrative Health. And um, I work at that clinic uh, doing health coaching for people with Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. And I also have my own private practice, which is Get Well with Julie, where I see folks that also have Lyme and uh, coach them through their healing process. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been working in the Lyme space for a number of years now. Before I started doing health coaching, I actually co-founded an herbal supplement company called Return Healthy, which was me and my first Lyme doctor and his wife and I uh, created this line of products for folks with Lyme and mold. And uh, then I moved to Chicago and kind of got a restart and shifted my career a little bit and shifted my life a lot. And uh, yeah, so I've been kind of in it for a while. So let's talk about the life shift. So uh, I, I can tell that you're not a native of Chicago. So where are you a native? Where, where are you natively from? And um, talk to us a little bit about what it was like to grow up where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Ohio. So kind of like suburbs of Cleveland between Akron and Cleveland. Um, and I mean, I grew up in a very kind of uh, middle-class Midwestern family and, uh, grew up running around in the woods, it's likely where I got Lyme. I'm not sure of it. I've never seen the tick bite. So, you know, I'm, I don't know in my case, but, um, yeah, I had a good childhood. I mean, it was a lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of hiking and camping, and my parents are really into music and concerts. And that's still to this day, probably my favorite thing to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, just grew up very like Midwestern watching football on the weekends and hiking and playing outside and cooking with mom and yeah, riding bikes and all that good stuff. So, um, I'm, I'm assuming that during the course of your childhood in your traditional Midwestern environment, there were a number of different things that your parents cautioned you about so that you wouldn't get sick or hurt. 
Uh, do those things include um, preparing you to keep yourself safe from tick bites and tick diseases? No, I, I mean, I vaguely remember as a kid and I believe it was maybe like in Girl Scouts or something like that. We had, you know, there was, I knew about ticks and I mean, I grew up with the idea that if you find a tick biting you, that you burn it with a match like that old, you know, which we know now very much not to do that. Um, but no, I mean, I was aware of ticks and I was aware that you might have to get one off of you, but I was not aware that you could get sick from it. So how did you become aware of ticks and how did you become aware of needing to get them off of you? And I guess you were taught that you're supposed to use a blowtorch and burn them off you in some yeah. way. But yeah. so how, uh, tell, I mean, give, give me some sense of, of, of what that detail was and whether or not that created awareness, whether it didn't create awareness, meaning did you think it was something that was unlikely to happen to you so you didn't have to be concerned about it? I mean, you know, what, what was it that you, you knew about it and how did you behave as a result of what you learned? I mean, I did nothing to prevent tick bites. That, that was not a thing with my family. I and I no one that I remember. Um, I don't remember while we were camping doing we never did a tick check. There was no like permethrin spray on the clothing. I mean, we would use, you know, off because of mosquitoes, because they were annoying, you know, they were pests, but not because of like disease or anything like that. So um I definitely did not have an awareness that they, I could bit by, get bit by a tick and that that could make me sick. Um, and I'm not even really sure when that came to be something that I knew about, maybe when I was in my twenties and started having like pets and stuff, you know, and you have to give your dog treatments for ticks because they can get Lyme disease. Like I remember that being a thing, but never about humans. I mean, the only thing that I can think back, even knowing about Lyme disease was I was probably a teenager when that, um, episode of uh, real world came out where one of the women had Lyme disease. And I remember that, but I feel like the way they portrayed it too, was just so dramatic and not what I think of it now at, at all. Like, I mean, and obviously that can be the case and symptoms can present as wild things, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember ever really like having any sort of sense that I should stay away from ticks, check for ticks, prevent tick bites, anything like that. So talk to us about what you were working toward during your childhood, meaning when you were closing your eyes and you were dreaming about your future, uh, where was young Julie going to find herself when she grew up? I was a very ambitious kid. Um, I wanted at one point to be a marine biologist because I love marine animals. I love dolphins and orcas. So to this day, I go uh, watch the orcas up in the Salish Sea off the coast of Washington. Um, I at one point wanted to be the first female president. That was definitely a thing. I was a very advanced kid. So um, I was I was the kid that was, you know, like going to a different school one day a week to go to the like talented and gifted kid classes and, you know, doing, I was, I was a smart child. I I'd still never, I've never really quite rectified what that is or where that comes from or how that is with certain children. Definitely impacted my childhood and, and the person that I grew up to be in both good and bad ways. But um, I was very ambitious. I definitely wanted to change the world. I was sending money to, you know, uh, save the animals groups when I was, you know, six years old and I was recycling in the mid eighties, you know, like people didn't, that wasn't a thing, you know? So I was, I was very amb ambitious, really wanted to impact the world, really thought that I could do big things. I really did think so. Yeah. So did you, have, did you have visions that you were going to go to a particular college and major in a particular field of study? Or you know, did you have some other thoughts about how you were going to prepare for changing the world? 
Um, I didn't have a particular college in mind. I knew I would go to college um, or I thought I would go to college and I did. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I thought of when I was thinking of this plan. It just felt very grandiose and I felt capable. I definitely felt like I had um, teachers and family in my life that thought that I was capable and able to do anything. And so that pretty much, I mean, I, I did really well in school. And so I just figured it would all sort of come together easily. That wasn't actually the case, but um, I thought that was going to be the case. All right. So talk to us about where you went to college and what your field of study was. Yeah. Um, I actually started college pretty young. I was, I think I had just turned 16 when I started college. Um, and I was doing like a program where you could go to college as a high school student and, um, and get high school and college credit for it. And so by the time I actually graduated high school at 18, I was already like a sophomore or junior in college. And so then I ended up at Ohio State. That's where I got my undergrad degree from. Um, I was young, so I didn't really know what I wanted. I mean, I had all these great ideas, but then applying them through college, once I got there and being so young, I really didn't know what to do. I didn't have a ton of guidance in that respect. Um, and so I knew I loved to read novels and I knew I loved to learn. And so I got an English degree because I was like, well, that seems like a pretty good starting point for whatever it is I might end up wanting to do in a few years. So in, in the end it did work out, but, uh, yeah, it was, I never had that. Once I got to college, I wasn't like, I'm going to be a nurse or an engineer or this, like, you know, I wasn't on this really solid path. I definitely, by the time I was in my teenage years, especially my later teenage years around the time that I think that I got my tick bite, uh, I think I was around 17 or 18 when that happened, I really became lost. I really just like, kind of didn't know what to do for a number of years and just sort of floated along. Okay. And we're going to get to that tech bite and your life being sent to drift in a minute, but let's finish mm -hmm. your educational uh, background. So I understand you have yeah. an MBA. So talk to us about graduate school first in San Francisco, <laughs> and then ultimately your international studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I moved kind of all over the place in my twenties and in my late twenties ended up in San Francisco, one of my favorite cities on the planet. I just loved the first time I went there. I was like, this is where I need to live. Um, and so I moved there. I ended up getting recruited for a job there and I was living there having a great time, um, and decided I wanted to go to grad school. Well, I always thought I would, but I wasn't really quite sure what that looked like. So, um, I looked at a number of schools and I ended up at San Francisco state, uh, which I chose because it had a sustainable and social business program. So they were really big on like, you can change the world through business. I think you can, the theme is continuing um, of just feeling like I could do big things um, or good things really, I guess, more than anything. It didn't have to be big. It just had to be good. Um, and so I was in grad school for a couple of years while I was working full time. And uh, they had a program where you could go get an additional master's degree at the University of Nice in Southern France. And so I jumped at the chance having wanted to live in Europe my entire life. And so, yeah, that's what I did. I went to Nice and uh, studied for about six months and came back. And yeah, that's, that's my, I've got an MBA, a master's of business administration and a master's of international business. So as a gal who has more letters after her name than in her name, um, talk to us about what you learned about keeping yourself safe from vector-borne illnesses during your educational experiences, first in the Midwest in Ohio, uh, then in San Francisco, and then ultimately in France. Literally nothing. Absolutely not a darn thing. Nothing at all. I mean, that period of time, I was also working in healthcare. And so not only in school, did I not learn anything, but working in healthcare, I did not learn anything about tick, 
foreign illnesses. Okay. Yeah. So now let's let's focus a little bit on your time in healthcare. What were you doing initially in healthcare, and um, and do you believe that there are any people suffering from tick-borne illnesses that um, now looking back, uh, you might have been able to help had you been uh, either aware or trained on how to um, help folks dealing with these challenges? Um, I mean, in healthcare, I was working more on the IT and like sort of business strategy side. So not directly working with patients, clients or anything like that. Um, so no, I don't really feel like there was any missed opportunities to help people with that could have had tick-borne illness in those in that respect. Um, but I, I was working in healthcare when I got sick, when I started exhibiting symptoms and certainly they did not know what to do about it. They didn't identify it. They didn't know. So you shared with us a moment ago, that you believed that you were bitten by a tick or the tick bite that you suffered could have been many yeah. uh, happened while you were in your teen. So talk about yeah. why you believe that was, was why was, or is the case? Um, because in, I, I don't remember which summer it was. I believe it was either like when I was like 17 or 18, I um, came down with a severe summer flu after spending this one night, my sister and I went to a, like a campfire out in the woods and we got lost and we had been like hiking through this tall grass at night for hours, totally lost. And I don't know, within the next day or two, I came down with, again, like I said, what the doctors called like a summer flu. I was very achy. I had a severe stiff neck. Um, I felt like I had a flu, but with a stiff neck. And I went to the doctor because my mom thought I had meningitis and the doctor was like, no, you've just got some sort of bug and you know, you're just going to have to ride it out. There was nothing really to be done about it. And after that period of time, like that neck pain, that stiff neck never went away. And that headache never went away. That stuff didn't go away until decades later when I was finally diagnosed with and treated for Lyme disease. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Yep. So talk to us about your family dynamic. You talked a little bit about a sister. You talked about your mom. Talk about what your family dynamic was at that time when you were doing your evening hike through the uh, tall grass, uh, the tall grassy knoll that uh, yeah. you were lost in. Yeah, I mean, I have, there's five people in my family. My parents are high school sweethearts. They're still married. Um, they live in Canton, Ohio. Uh, which is where I was born and they were raised. And um, I have an older brother and a younger sister. And like I said, we spent a lot of times time growing up out in the woods and doing that kind of stuff. This night that I was on this hike, my sister was with me and uh, my sister also has Lyme disease. So it's kind of one of those things that looking back, we're like, did we both get it at the same time? Maybe, I don't know. We'll never know, right? Unfortunately, we'll never know. Does it really matter? No, but it's just sort of like part of my story of like sense making for us um, of kind of piecing things together. Um, but uh, my sister is two years younger than me and we're very close. We've always been very close. And we were just, I mean, we were out at a party. We were at a bonfire that was out in the woods next to some railroad tracks and just like having a good time as teenagers. So now talk to us about how your symptoms developed from the point that you suffered this summer flu uh, to the time where you were finally diagnosed. And I don't want you to get to the yeah. diagnosis yet, but just talk about how your symptoms were developing. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, looking back, I think my whole life, I was never super well. So, you know, these are the things where you go, where did this, how does this all kind of play together? Right. Um, I would have bouts of ex extreme allergies as a kid, or I would become 
really allergic to poison ivy. I'd inhale poison ivy that was being burnt in a fire and have to be on steroids because it would get in my lungs and throat. Um, I had pneumonia severely when I was a child. I, I mean, I vividly remember not being able to breathe and that whole experience. Um, so, you know, I mean, I was kind of the kid that always got everything that was going around. So, um, you know, looking back never super well, but very functional. And I mean, I had a very, uh, good quality of life for the most part. But after that tick bite, that neck pain and stiffness and kind of low grade headache never went away. I mean, I'm talking. Let me ask you to pause that for a second because I do want to explore something you you shared with us, which is um, you imply that you were kind of a sickly kid, right? You you didn't have the best immune system. Now, do you believe that it's possible that your immune system was compromised because you either had Lyme as a young child or perhaps congenitally? Uh, contracted Lyme? Uh, or do you believe that because you had this fragile immune system that you were more vulnerable to Lyme when you did uh, suffer your tick bite? I mean, I suspect the latter. I mean, I've thought about it, whether it could be congenital that I could have gotten it from my mom. My mom's super healthy. I mean, could she have Lyme disease? It's possible. I don't, uh, she's never been tested, definitely not appropriately. So I, I don't know. Um, but to me, I think more than anything, maybe I was probably have some genetic things that lead me to be a little bit more susceptible to things. And that combined with a childhood of um, very poor diet, I think some of that stuff was more like a contributing factor than anything. I mean, I joke with few people that like my mom or my parents let me drink soda for breakfast as a kid. And, you know, that I just kind of wonder like, oh, well, yeah, no wonder you got sick. You were eating Cheetos for dinner and Pepsi for breakfast. Like it, I'm sure it contributed, you know, they were doing the best they could. They didn't know, but yeah. 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 So we, we, we've seen in many, many cases where we have people who were sickly kids and then they ultimately contracted Lyme. So it's, you know, it's one of the questions I love to ask. Yeah. Um, And um, my, my sense is that in most cases, um, you know, folks have the capacity to manage the Lyme bacteria or the combination of germs that are spit into them when they get bitten by ticks. Cause we, I think we get bitten often during our lives. We are just not aware of it. And, and, and I think there's a subset of the population that is, you know, that is, you know, is very healthy or have a very, you know, healthy immune system and they're able to manage it. And there are some folks who have um, an immune system that is not as capable of, of, of managing it. And of course we have these immune disrupting events we can talk a little bit about mm-hmm. as well. But so now yeah. please, please take us forward with how your symptoms were developing and talk to us specifically about how it's affecting your life. Because it sounds like from our earlier conversation that you were sort of adrift, right? You were, you yeah. were, you were, you were somebody who was smart. You were somebody yeah. who was, who was capable. You were certainly somebody who was driven, but you were just kind of floating around and, you know, following this educational path without a direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in college, I'm not going to lie. I was a partier. So that headache, you know, it was there. I mean, it's, it was always there. So, uh, you know, I learned to ignore it with, uh, <laughs> ibuprofen and, and having a good time and trying to forget about it. Um, and, but it was there, it was present for a very long time, that headache and that neck pain. I don't think through college it was affecting me a lot, but I'm, it certainly was affecting me. Um, I, after college, I moved to San Diego and I just happened upon getting like a really good job 
Um, and so that's where things kind of like shifted for me. I, even though I was sort of like adrift and afloat and I, I did get my degree and it was fine. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I was mostly like bartending and just doing whatever to pay my bills and everything. I wasn't super clear on like where I thought the path was going to lead at that point. Um, and then, yeah, I got a good job working at a big company in Southern California and did really well and got promoted a lot. And that I, I sort of just kind of let that take me because it was it was easy and it seemed like it was like the thing that just um, I didn't have to try super hard and I had a good solid job and it gave me structure and foundation. But meanwhile, I'm still having these symptoms. I'm having you know, severe jaw pain that is, you know, putting me at the ENT and the dentist where they can't figure out why I have this horrible tension in my jaw. That's, you know, like cracking my teeth in my sleep because I'm grinding so much, um, or constantly at the doctor's office, trying to figure out what to do about this headache. I mean, this headache was like this thing that just never would go away. It would maybe go down to a two or a three out of 10, but it was always there. Um, and that just continued for years and years. And then I'd say probably in my like mid twenties, you know, I'm doing well career-wise. I hadn't quite started grad school yet. I started having breathing issues. I was exposed to wildfires in California and that was really hard on my system. And I started having breathing issues. And, you know, the, of course the doctors told me it's asthma and they give me all these inhalers, but none of that works. It doesn't help at all. I still can't breathe very well. Can't feel like I'm catching my breath. It's just this constant feeling. And so it's like over the years, things are just adding, adding, adding to it. Um, I moved to San Francisco. I get recruited for a really good job. Um, I mean, I was doing triathlons at that point. I mean, I wasn't feeling great. I had this headache constantly. I had all these other sort of miscellaneous weird symptoms, um, you know, like the eye twitching that won't go away for a year that no one can explain. Um, but I was doing triathlons and I was riding my bike you know, all over San Francisco, up and down the hills, across the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, I was doing a lot. I felt actually okay. I was, it was manageable um, until it wasn't. So talk to us about that. When, when wasn't manageable? How did, how did the crash occur and what was going on in your life at the time the crash did occur? Yeah. Uh, the crash occurred for me, I think I was around 29. Yeah, I was 29. Um, I was working full-time, a very stressful job. I was working 50, 60 hours a week. I lived in San Francisco, but I worked in Sacramento and I'm driving back and forth multiple times a week, multiple hours in the car. I'm working for a company in healthcare doing technology solutions and business strategy and stuff like that. And I'm working for, you know, like uh, chief executives and such and uh, in doctor's offices with folks that were very hard on me. And it was um, incredibly stressful. I was also going to grad school at night. So I'm working 50, 60 hours a week. I'm driving back and forth from San Francisco to Sacramento. Um, and I'm coming back pretty much only two nights a week um, during that, during the work week to then go to class. So I'm going to class from six to 10 o'clock at night. I'm spending all weekend doing homework, writing papers, doing group assignments. Um, I had no time for myself. I had no time for stress relief. I had, you know, I was just go, 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 go. Um, and so then for me, the crash happened. Um, it was actually a couple of months after I got married. So I'd also gone through the stress of planning a wedding and, uh, uh, the crash occurred, um, actually in Lake Tahoe. 
I went to Tahoe to go snowboarding with some friends. And um, I sort of, in my mind, suspect a mold exposure at that point. I'm not sure. Uh, but I came back from that trip and was really in bad shape. I started fainting regularly. So first it happened in the shower. And then it happened uh, walking home from school. And then it happened in a doctor's office that I'm working with while I'm talking to him. And, you know, they test my blood sugar, they test my blood pressure, they send me to endocrinology and cardiology and, you know, neurology, no one can find anything. And during that period of time, I'm just like, the crash happened. And then it was like, there was a clear, there was a clear like night and day situation where like one day I'm functional working, doing the grad school thing. And the next day I'm barely able to get out of bed. I need to take a nap every day. I have to slowly cut back my hours at work. Eventually I had to quit that job. Of course, they all told me I was just like too stressed out. You know, you need to do, you need to relax more. You're take, you've taken on too much. You're not doing enough. Yeah. But that, I don't think that would cause me to faint, but okay. You know, um, and, uh, unfortunately for me, it took another five years before I actually got an answer. Okay. So let's talk about this, this crash and this moment uh, of crash, right? Because there are a lot of folks that we interview who are always offended when people say, Hey, you're doing too much. And that's, what's causing you to be sick. Right. And I understand that, but the truth is when you're doing too much, you are engaging in immuno, uh, you know, destructive behavior. And it really is what's causing your (laughs) inability to fight off these bugs that are, that have been spit into you. And, and, and of course are compromising your, your body. Right. So, so um, let's, let's explore the mold piece of this because that's, that's a theme that keeps coming up in this podcast. And uh, Dr. Rawls, for example, had shared with us that very rarely in his practice, when he was a clinician, did he have someone go from a tick bite to, to a chronic illness. There were some circumstances where either somebody suffered multiple tick bites, so the viral load or the, uh, you know, the, the bacterial load was so high and then they'd get sick or somebody was living in, uh, you know, in an immunocompromised uh, environment like living in a high mold environment. And that ultimately caused that type of uh, suppression of their immune system to cause them to get sick. So let's explore that lime, I mean, the, the lime and the, um, and the mold piece. And how'd you find out about the mold and, and what role do you think that played in, in triggering your crash? Yeah, I'm glad you bring it up because I think it's a huge part of this. And I do talk about it a lot um, because I've had a number of mold exposures. Uh, and fortunately for me, by the time I was diagnosed with Lyme, my first Lyme doctor was a Lyme doctor and mold specialist. So that was uh, lucky on my part, I guess. Um, so I had that, I think I had this mold exposure in Lake Tahoe cause I just clearly came back very brain fogged and tired and exhausted where I didn't go there with it. Um, maybe a year or two later, I had quit my, you know, career job working 60 hours a week and was working at this, um, clothing shop in San Francisco, like Raiden hate Ashbury, you know, and we had a mold exposure at work. And I clearly remember that. I mean, they opened up the wall and this place was just riddled with mold. And it was in like one of the storerooms that I had to run in and out of to get products for people, you know, and I felt awful when I was at work, you know, but this whole time, I still don't know about mold. I still don't know about Lyme. I still don't even connect that like these this mold exposure probably could have like been part of what was triggering symptoms for me. Um, and this is like year 
one or two of, of being symptomatic. And then, I mean, for me, the thing that truly threw me over the edge was a severe mold exposure right before I got diagnosed with Lyme and mold. So I had um, moved to Portland, Oregon, and I moved into this old Victorian house. And I mean, if you walk in the door of this place, it just like mustiness hits you like a brick wall. And um, I didn't know anything about mold being able to make you sick. And um, I just thought it was, this is an old house. It smells like a basement. And within two weeks of moving into that home, I went from sick, not well, but functional to, I cannot get out of bed. And after that happened, I did not get out of bed for two years almost. So how long did it take you to finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis? Five years. Five years from the crash. Five years from the crash. Okay. So it was what, 20 years from the bite Um, or at least your, your earliest symptoms? Let's see if I was in my teens, when I think I got the bite, I was in my late twenties when I, uh, started when I had the crash, um, and around 34, 35, when I got diagnosed. So yeah, I mean, 15, 20 years. Yeah. How many different doctors did you see between the time that you first started to exhibit symptoms from that late night, um, romp through the woods with your sister to the point where you finally got your diagnosis? 26 doctors. 26 doctors. Um, I want to say probably 150 to 200 visits. Yeah. And were you misdiagnosed with anything during that window of time? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I was having that, that headache just over the years got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where, um, in that period of time, I was having headaches so severe that I would end up in the hospital on IV, um, painkillers. Um, so, you know, I'd be on IV Dilaudid thinking that I could taste the color purple. And that was the only thing that would give me slight relief from this headache that I had. Um, so migraines, they thought I had just chronic migraines. I was seeing neurologist after neurologist. Um, they thought I might've had narcolepsy because of the severe fatigue. I did, you know, a number of sleep studies around that. Um, they thought I had food allergies. Um, they thought that it could have been a hormonal thing. Um, I probably the most traumatizing thing was that during that period of time when the headaches were so severe that they were putting me in the hospital, of course, finally somebody ordered an MRI and, uh, they found a a cyst in my brain. And so I have a very large cyst on my pineal gland, which is in the very center of your brain. And your pineal gland is the gland that produces melatonin that helps you sleep. I've had insomnia virtually my entire life. So they kind of thought that, you know, this cyst was causing all of these problems. So I spent about a year and a half, two years working with a neurosurgeon who was going back and forth, whether he was going to have to perform brain surgery to take this cyst out of my brain. Um, And this cyst, you know, being in the middle part of your brain, it's, I think the most dangerous brain surgery that can be performed. Um, They go back behind your ear, up underneath your brain, over your brain stem and kind of underneath to try to remove this thing. And um, I mean, this is just still there now, how many years later? And I'm very healthy now and feeling great. So presumably the cyst is not causing any problems, but it's, it is very large. It's about two and a half inches wide and two inches long. I mean, it's large. It's very large, bigger than a walnut sitting in the middle of my brain. Um, but that was terrifying. I mean, you know, you're going through this thing and you're thinking, well, if this guy is telling me that getting this brain surgery could be the thing that's going to help me feel better and I feel awful and no one knows what it is, but the brain surgery could kill me. So 
what do I do about that? So I think, um, you know, what I, I, you know, looking back and what I talked to a lot of folks about is just like the, the trauma related to going through this, these medical processes and how really, how that really contributes to how people, how sick people get, because it's just so stressful. It's awful. All right. So talk to us specifically about how the medical trauma affected you, meaning you, you were, you were living this, you know, this very active life where you yeah. were burning the candle at both ends that resulted in you ultimately suffering a crash, I guess, in addition to the mold exposure. So you, you sort of had, it's almost like us watching this train go down the track and we know it's going to run into the wall as you're, yep. as you're describing it to us, right? You do hit that wall. You have, you, you have this five-year journey where you're ultimately bed bound for a couple of years. Um, talk to us about how the medical trauma also added to this very difficult set of circumstances that were already causing you to have a compromised immune system. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you go through periods of time when the smartest people that, you know, these doctors that are supposed to, you know, be really intelligent and they're supposed to know what's going on, you know, we're taught that. And, and when they say either one, we don't know, or two, they say, um, you need to go see a therapist because you're making this up, which I did here. Um, or you hear things like, um, you might need to have this intent, this surgery that might kill you on your brain. Um, or, you know, all these things that they tell you, it's, uh, you get to the point, well, at least I got to the point where I sometimes thought, yeah, I mean, am I sort of like making this up to some degree? Like, is there, so, it, has, did something happen and I'm fabricating this and it's not as bad as I'm making it out to be, you know, you start to question yourself and you start to almost gaslight yourself, you know, and to wait, maybe, maybe they are right. And I'm wrong. Maybe it really isn't that bad. And I'm just getting older. And, you know, even though I'm in my thirties at the time, maybe I'm just getting older and this is just, no one has this kind of energy. And, uh, maybe I just, the brain fog, maybe my brain just doesn't work as well as it used to. And so, you know, maybe that's what it is. So you start to really second guess yourself and what your truth is. And I think that's really, really bad for us. Well, um, so let's, let's, let's build that out a little bit. So do you believe that the medical trauma that you were suffering during that window of time was causing your survival software to be triggered and that you were in the fight or flight mode and obviously not able to heal when you're in that mode. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was going to die this whole period of time. I mean, I was going through fainting episodes. They're telling me I need this severe brain surgery. I mean, every day of my life for those five years that I went undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to make it through this. And I mean, there were many moments where I you know, I mean, I had a lot of suicidal ideation in that period of time. And I'm really open about what I've dealt with, with my mental health. It's something I struggled with way before I ever even had Lyme, but or you take you a you had Lyme. or I, before I knew I had Lyme, you're right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it could have been a contributing factor when I was younger. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I went through periods of time where I, I didn't want to live anymore because I, you know, I, I thought I was going to die anyways. No one could figure this out. So, you know, why keep going? Right. And why, and why, and why pursue something purposefully, right? You were yeah. just sort of drifting, right? And, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I, yeah. So, um, I want you to put your, your, your health coach hat on now. Mm -hmm. I want you to look back at this experience that you had. And, you know, one of the things that we often find frustrating when we're listening to the, the diagnostic journey of, of our guests is that it's very clear to us that people had Lyme disease, that the mm -hmm. signs were clear. Uh, another thing we find really frustrating is in many cases, our guests are actually diagnosed by a fellow 
or a family member of, 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 of a fellow um, person who has had Lyme disease because the symptoms are so clear to us once we know that they are, right? So right. You, went, you went to see, I mean, you went to hundreds 20. of doctor's appointments. Yes. You, had, you had scores of doctors, right? Looking back, do you now believe that somebody as well-trained as you are right now would have been able to very easily diagnose you early on in this journey and have offered you intervention that would probably have made your journey shorter and, and probably the rebuilding of your health much easier? A hundred percent. Yes. And that's exactly what happened with my sister. So my sister didn't become symptomatic for Lyme until I was already in remission from Lyme. And she started exhibiting symptoms and, you know, the weird stuff that she was saying, I, you know, I'm telling telling her, Aaron, this sounds like Lyme. And it really did take her a couple of months to even digest that it was possible because she was so terrified of seeing what I went through. Um, But, you know, my sister is very vocal about this, that, you know, unfortunately my suffering kind of saved her. Uh, because I knew, I knew what it was. And uh, I got her in with a Lyme doctor very quickly. We got her an hygienics test within a few months of her having symptoms. And yeah, sure enough. Okay. So let's, let's talk about this portion of her journey and your journey together, right? So yeah. um, how close do you believe you? I mean, obviously you're from the same parents, so you have, you have very similar genes, but how, how have they presented the two of you? Do you resemble one another? Do you have very similar genetics? And how did um, ultimately... Lyme present either similarly or differently in your sister than it did in you, because it sounds like you were both bitten around the same time. You probably were, you know, suffering from the illness for a long time. Did you have a very similar presentation or was it different? Very different. And I think this is what is so interesting, interesting and unfortunate about Lyme is how it presents so differently in different people. So um, I always, you know, with my coaching clients, I tell them this story all the time because, you know, people come to me with the question of, well, how long is it going to take for me to feel better or what's going to work for me? And it's so hard to say. So um, my sister and I are two years apart. She's younger. We are very close. Uh, we spent our entire lives hanging out together. So we were roommates in college. We're very close and uh, we look like twins. I mean, our whole lives, people thought that we were twins. Um, our voice is so similar that I cannot tell the difference. It's creepy. It's creepy to me. And uh, we look alike. We're the same height. I got curly hair. She's got straight hair. That's about the only difference. Um, so two people, very genetically similar. Obviously we look alike, same parents, um, the whole, you know, very similar. And then in my case, when I became symptomatic for Lyme, I had been, you know, like I said, working a lot, super stressful lifestyle, traveling for work, poor diet, undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for five years. In my sister's case, I, we caught it early. You know, she was diagnosed within three months, I think of being symptomatic. My sister, um, she lives in Florida. She's got access to vitamin D all year long. She's a yoga instructor. She's got a regular meditation practice. She, you know, eats a lot of fruits and vegetables. And so you take two very genetically similar people with two very different lifestyles and two very different diagnostic stories. And we were very different. So let's focus on one more thing, right? Yeah. Because you were bitten by different ticks, at least 
the evening of the tick, and we don't know what was spit into you. So even though you have this sort of very similar genetic experience, there were a number of other factors that allowed her to manage the disease for a longer period of time, some yep. of them lifestyle. Yep. But we just don't know what was spit into you and was spit into her, unless you're telling me that when you both took your test, you had identical co-infection. That's, that's what I'm telling you. We have exactly the, the identical co-infection panel okay. profile. Yeah. Yep. All right, but let's 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 talk about that a little bit more too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you and she had identical profiles doesn't mean that you did have identical uh, germ experiences because yeah. we only test for a very small number of the germs, and you know some of the research has shown that a tick can spit up to two hundred different microbes into you, and we test for at best six or seven of them, right? right. So right. even though you had this identical panel which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that you had the same germ spit into you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think on top of that, I, you know, I had chronic Epstein-Barr as a kid. So you add a virus into this whole thing as well that I don't believe well, she might have that as well. Um, but then also add in the mold exposures, which she didn't have. So just number of layers of things that make two people's stories very different. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, and you, we, again, we really don't know a whole lot about whether she did have exposure to mold, but yeah. certainly didn't yeah. have the same exposure you have. So let's, let's build out this mold piece before I share, um, share this with Matt. He's dying that he's not able to ask any of his questions yet. Kill but me, let's, Rich. <laughs> let's, let's, let's build out the mold piece. Like why is mold so bad for someone when they come in contact with it? What does it do to you? And why does it compromise your immune function? Yeah. Um, this is what I know about it. Certainly not an expert, but having not only been, you know, a, a mold patient and worked with a shoemaker certified mold doctor, who was my first Lyme doctor and my former business partner, and then creating products for mold. This is what I know about mold, um, is that there is a genetic susceptibility for, for mold. Um, it is also the same thing that we believe is the genetic susceptibility for chronic Lyme disease. Um, and so, yeah, it's called HLA-DR. It's some sort of halotype um, genetic mutation that we suspect, I think not we, but I mean, I think the community sus suspects that there's about 25% of the population that has this, that is susceptible to mold illness, different than mold allergies and mold toxicity, um, which is the same thing that makes you susceptible to chronic Lyme disease. So um, essentially what happens um, from my understanding is that when these mold toxins enter the human body, mostly through inhalation, I believe they can also enter the body through food sources. So there are some very moldy food sources, um, that, you know, it can get into your bloodstream that way, but I believe the number one way and the majority of the way the molds get into your body is through inhalation, um, that our immune systems, people like me that have this genetic mutation, our immune systems aren't able to tag that toxin as bad and tell it to get out. And so it basically recirculates into our, in our systems and it, it come, becomes this, it's called SIRS, C-I-R-S. It's chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So our systems, our immune systems are chronically reacting to these mold toxins and same thing with the Lyme toxins and the Lyme bacteria and uh, causing these huge inflammatory events and uh, causing us to be very sick. So the T cells are not tagging in some cases the, the, the mold and therefore the B cells are not killing it because you do not have the capacity to essentially have that type of software 
to properly identify this as a threat? That's my understanding. Okay, that's yeah. very powerful. So yeah. why do you think we as a society um, do so little to protect ourselves from mold? Um, and, and the reason I find this to be so interesting, again, as a, you know, as a person who was never warned about protecting myself from mold, is that I've actually found in the Bible uh, that uh, it, in the Old Testament, in the Torah itself, before someone who is suffering from leprosy could go back home when they've recovered from leprosy, the Bible um, required a rabbi to check your home to find out if there's mold in your home. So this is something that dates all the way back at least thousands of years ago, where there was this very clear warning to, to people who were dealing with, again, another probably um, vector-borne um, bacteria. Um, that that part of the part of the treatment protocol would be to determine whether or not there's mold in your house. So why do you think we know so little about mold in modern society when thousands of years ago the Jews were protecting themselves from mold exposure? Wow, that's that's really fascinating. I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know really. I mean, in talking to Dr. Vosloo, who is my my former business partner and Lyme doctor and mold specialist. Um, he says that there's even just still like thousands of different types of uh, microbes and pathogens that live in homes that we haven't even like identified yet. Right. Like there's only some of them that we even know what they are. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's shocking to me because the EPA says that about 50% of buildings have mold and 25% of the population has a susceptibility to getting sick from mold. That ma- I don't like that math. That math is not good, and it's not in our favor as healthy human beings. So I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, of course, we build homes cheaper than we ever have. They don't breathe well, and so they get mold easier. Um, and I don't know. It's shocking. I mean, there's so many things about having Lyme or mold that is shocking and unbelievable. I guess the list never ends for me of being just like wowed in a bad way about these things. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have any good thoughts about that. So Julie, I just want to ask you to clarify something or reiterate something. So you, you made a comment earlier that there's mold illness, which is different than I think you said mold sensitivity and mold toxicity. Is that correct? Yeah, I said mold allergies, mold toxicity, and mold illness. Yeah, are three different things. So can you can you explain to us what the difference between mold illness, mold allergies, and mold toxicity is? Yeah, my understanding is, is that mold allergies are like an inhaled allergy to mold. So there's some sort of like histamine reaction, you sneeze and stuff like that. Um, mold toxicity is like an actual toxicity where if you're exposed to mold in a certain way, it becomes toxic in your blood and it can cause a different kind of sickness. I understand than a mold allergy and a mold and mold illness. Mold illness is what I just mentioned as SIRS, C-I-R-S, and that's the chronic version. I think what happens is, is that if somebody is exposed to mold, it becomes toxic in their blood first. And if their body isn't able to get rid of it because they have this genetic disposition that can't tag this stuff to get out of the body, then it becomes mold illness, which is this recirculation of of a, a major inflammatory response. So mold toxicity is a precursor to mold illness, basically. I think so. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And Julie, can you repeat the name of the genetic mutation? Because a lot of people we've interviewed and we've, we've come into contact with have told us they've developed chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. And you're telling us that that's directly connected to this genetic mutation that makes us more susceptible to mold illness, which we know to be true as well. So right. what is that genetic mutation? So our listeners can explore that, explore that further with their practitioners. 
Yeah, it's called HLA-DR. So, and it's, it's a lab test that can be done. I, I believe there is a certain kind of interpretation that needs to be done on it by somebody that is skilled in this. Um, I usually reference people back or refer people back to uh, Richie Shoemaker's website, which I think is survivingmold.com. Um, and Richie Shoemaker is kind of a leading expert, I, I would say, on mold illness. I think he coined the term Sears. And on his website, he's got some information about like symptoms and diagnostics and tests and stuff like that. And I just want to repeat those statistics because this is really powerful information that mm-hmm. 50, 50% of buildings have mold and 25% of human beings have this genetic deficiency, this HLA-DR genetic deficiency, which causes them to become chronically ill from mold exposure. Correct. So we're going like to- I said, I don't like that math. Yeah, that's mind blowing. It and is mind blowing. That's, that's it's really like tens of millions of people that potentially could get sick from it. So what are your thoughts on binders to help with, with mold? I like binders. And so when I was working for Return Healthy, we had, I mean, that's how the company started was that uh, the doctor that I was working with, Dr. Boslu, formulated a binder specifically for detoxing mold. It's called Binder Blend. And um, it's a blend of activated charcoal, chlorella, clay and something else. I don't remember, um, off the top of my head, but it's a great binder that's made specifically for folks that have Lyme and mold. Um, it's one of the binders that is used typically. So it's a non-prescription binder for, um, mold that you could get over the counter, unlike cholestyramine, which is another one that's used by mold practitioners. That is a prescription. So Julie, let's go back to your, your journey. So when did Lyme come into the picture for you? You mentioned it was about five years. I'm guessing you were around 34 when you got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, you were in San Francisco, I believe you said, where Lyme knowledge is almost non-existent. So how did you get a Lyme diagnosis? Um, by the time I was diagnosed, I had moved to Portland, Oregon, and somebody had referred me to a naturopath there. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen a naturopath. Remember, I'd been working in healthcare, so seeing just your standard you know, Western medicine doctors. And at that point, I really just felt like I had nothing left to lose um, by going to alternative medicine. Uh, I tried everything that these other doctors had told me and nothing had worked. And here I am just slowly getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, I had a month before I saw this practitioner, this naturopath, I had seen the movie, The Punk Singer. Have you seen this movie? So the punk singer is a movie about Kathleen Hanna and Kathleen Hanna was the lead singer of a riot girl punk band called Bikini Kill. And I grew up a big punk rocker. My first concert when I was 12 years old was the Ramones. um, And I was like, Bikini Kill and Kathleen Hanna was like, they were my idols. Like these were the, these were women that were punk rockers and they were just so cool. I just thought they were the best. And so I had seen this movie called The Punk Singer about a month before I was diagnosed with Lyme. And uh, in this movie, Kathleen Hanna goes through this, you know, she talks about her whole story of, you know, coming up in, uh, you know, Olympia, Washington with this band and, you know, what a big movement this whole like riot girl punk rock was. And, um, and then she goes into this story about how she's like speaking at some event. Um, she's a big like activist and everything. And she's speaking at an event and she like gets real dizzy and passes out on stage. And she keeps going through this whole story of like her getting really sick and getting diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, wow, this, 
this sounds familiar. This is, this is what I'm going through. And that was the first time that it had dawned on me that what I had might be Lyme disease. I never even, you know, I mean, I think it was on the list of things that I had considered, but like, it wasn't something I was actively pursuing. Um, I had actively pursued MS and had kind of like had been given a tentative diagnosis of MS. I'd been, you know, autoimmune things, whatever I'd been pursuing all these things, but it was in that moment that I was like, okay, yep. I need to, I need to cross that off the list. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, if, interestingly enough, this is like my just favorite little kind of story about all of this. When Kathleen Hanna was going through her treatment for Lyme disease, she was recording music and in her home as like one of her, just like, you know, as the thing she was doing her solo project. And that solo project is called the Julie ruin. And, and so when I was doing my big fundraiser for live, the live Lyme foundation, when I climbed Mount St. Helens, which I know we'll talk about a bit, I, I, I tweeted them and I said, my name's Julie. And I was almost ruined by Lyme disease. And you know, they like promoted my fundraiser a little bit on their Twitter profile, which I always thought was really cool. Um, so it's just like kind of a fun. And when I was in treatment for Lyme disease, I went and saw them on the only tour that they ever did it was one, one time they did a tour. Um, and yeah. Okay. Where were we? Where? <laughs> No, that, that's super powerful. There. Yeah. We're going to definitely come back to your Live Lime Foundation fundraiser and all that great work that you did later on in your journey. Yeah. But focusing on, you know, the part of the story we're at right now, you just got diagnosed. So yes. you went to this naturopathic doctor yep. in Portland, Oregon. Yep. And because of, of, you know, watching this, you know, observing this, this story and, and somebody you were, you were, you know, monitoring, you brought Lyme back to the table. But it also makes me, the thought I keep having over and over, Julie, is, I had a very similar experience to you as far as symptomology and, and progression and they're classic Lyme symptoms. So now at this point, you're sick for almost 15 years since the time you started developing neck pain and headaches yeah. and Lyme was never really taken seriously, which is, is just yeah. so frustrating to hear that time and time again with your story. And thankfully you brought it back on the table. Now, when you went to the naturopathic doctor, was it, was it your persistence to get the blood work to, to prove you have Lyme disease or was this something the naturopathic doctor brought up and felt was something that could be the root cause of your symptoms. So I went to that naturopath with a list of like potential things, but I wanted to kind of like, just see where she would go with this. Right. And so like limes is the top of my list. I'm sitting there. I tell her my symptoms five minutes in. She's like, has anyone tested you for Lyme disease? And I, I think I showed her my list and I was like, no, but I want you to. Um, and she was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to give you a test. So here's this, this is how it's going to go. We can either send your blood to your insurance and or through your insurance to a lab that will co be covered by your insurance. And if it comes back positive, okay, it's positive. But if it comes back negative, it still could be positive. It's really unreliable. So you could do that. Um, or we could just nip this in the bud and find out for sure and send your blood to this specialized lab called Igenix. And it's going to cost some money and your insurance is probably not going to cover it, but what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to know definitively send my blood to Igenix. And that's what we did. And that's how I got my diagnosis. And Julie, was this a full tick-borne disease panel or just a Lyme panel through Igenix? So that was a Lyme, it was uh, the Western blot for Lyme disease. It was the uh, natural killer cell test. And I think the CD57. Um, so she was just kind of looking at do you have Lyme and, or do you have some other sort of immune dysfunction? And it wasn't until I got referred to my Lyme literate naturopath uh, a couple months later that he did the full co-infections panel for me. So when it came back positive, did you decide to treat with this naturopath or it sounds like you get referred to a more Lyme literate specialist who was a naturopath to treat with? 
I did treat with her for a couple of months. Um, and it was, it was mostly doxycycline and she, you know, she, she was smart. She knew enough, you know, to kind of like get me on the right track. But, uh, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of like, this is what a Herxheimer reaction is and what to expect and how long this treatment could last and whatever. It was like, let's try some doxycycline and see what happens. And I was like two months into it and sicker and sicker and sicker. And I was like, I really think that I need somebody to, to, that really knows this. And she was like, okay, well, lucky for you, there's a guy in town that really knows this. So yeah, you can go to him. So I was with him, gosh, maybe two or three, a month or two after I got my diagnosis. But Julie, looking back, do you think that doxycycline is adequate for anybody who's had Lyme for almost 20 years to really help them heal? I mean, I think it can be part of it. I don't think that alone is enough. No. Um, but I think it, 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 I see it successful, successfully be part of a treatment plan. Um, but it's definitely not going to be your silver bullet, not even close. So talk to us about the Herxheimer reactions you were having. So you clearly didn't know that this would happen and your naturopath didn't warn you. And you said you were getting worse and worse and worse. So how exactly were you feeling worse? I mean, somehow increased fatigue. I was even more tired than I was before. That headache got worse. Um, I just felt terrible. I mean, it was everything that I had before, but amplified. Yeah. So now you pivot over to this other Lyme special. So I believe is, is a Lyme literate naturopathic doctor yep. and you decided to start treating with, with him. So yep. how did you change your treatment from solely doxycycline to what with this new doctor? Uh, so, you know, it was really interesting. So that Lyme doctor, his name is Werner Vosloo. Um, and he's no longer in Portland, Oregon. He's now in St. St. George, Utah. So really, you know, unique and kind and wonderful human being and a really smart Lyme doctor and mold specialist. I went to his office and I had the initial consultation and, you know, remember five years, 26 doctors, hundreds of visits. And I keep going back. I keep going back to these other doctors over the years and being stubborn. Like, no, this is not the right answer. No, you're not going to do this brain surgery. No, it's not. I'm not making this up. I had like a persistence persistence in me that I, I still don't know where that came from. Um, but I got into his office and he was like, and I'm sure this was a big part of it. And this is what I think is really lacking on a lot of care that those of us with Lyme are getting. He was like, I, I believe you. I mean, I don't know if he even said that, but just the way he talked to me, he was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh the, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the problems with breathing. Yeah. That sounds like air hunger from Babesia. We'll test you for that. Um, you know, the fainting spells, that sounds like POTS, which is really common in this, you know, with Lyme, um, you know, and he was just very calm and he listened to me and he believed me and he had answers. And I was like, okay, that's it. Whatever this guy says I'm doing. And that was the first doctor that I was like, whatever this guy tells me to do, I'm going to do, because this is the first time that I truly feel like this person gets it and knows what to do to help me. And it was, you know, when you get a Lyme diagnosis after all those years, it's partially terrifying, but partially relieving. Right. And so the piece of terror that was still left in me was sort of resolved when I met him because it was like, okay, now I have not only an answer, but I have a a solution. You know, I have somebody that I really trust is going to help me get me get better. Um, and so then I just decided that I would do virtually anything he said. And I, I told him from the beginning, I'll, you know, I will do whatever you tell me to, um, 
I really love drinking coffee. And if you could avoid telling me to quit drinking coffee, like we'd stay better friends that way. Um, you know, if, if like, you know, a bourbon a week is still on the menu, I'm going to like you even more, but you know, I, you know, I was basically just like, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Right. Um, but you know, well, the cool thing with him is he was very collaborative whenever, you know, over these years I'm, I'm learning stuff as I'm going through treatment with him and I'm really digging in and figuring out what to do. And so I bring stuff back to him and say, Hey, I want to try this. Or what do you think about this? Or, you know, I don't think this thing is working for me. I don't want to do it anymore. And there was no ego involved with him. He would be like, okay, yeah, I, I believe you. I trust you. Okay. Let's try this next thing or, you know, whatever. So, um, really powerful experience having come from all this medical trauma to somebody that, you know, just could sit down and look me in the eyes and say, no, I get it. And I can help you. Let's do it. And that sort of relationship with your doctor is what we believe is the best relationship where it's a partnership, not a, a one-way street. And clearly it worked because, you know, fast forward, look at you today and, and you're in remission at this point. But I do want to ask you, so you mentioned you were still seeing your other doctors and now you had a positive Lyme diagnosis through this naturopath and now your new naturopath. Did your other doctors accept this diagnosis? Um, I think around that time I stopped seeing them. I mean, I think I don't, I don't recall, you know, the brain fog is real in that period of time. Um, at some point I stopped seeing Western medicine doctors in that period of time. Um, I don't recall if I had any, I mean, of course, since then I've gone to many doctors and told them that I have Lyme disease and, you know, I get a varying results in that respect, but yeah. What about Julie, your friends and family, when you got this diagnosis, did your friends and family believe your diagnosis? Um, yes. I mean, for the most part, yes. Cause they knew they, they knew that I, what I had been going through, they knew this testing process. Um, I was, I was married at the time and we, you know, that's my ex-husband. <laughs> I was married. I was married. And now my ex-husband, um, he believed me as well, but I think he was always sort of skeptical. Um, you know, he's kind of one of these guys that would tell me like, oh, you just need to exercise more, you know, and then I'd exercise and be in bed for three days, you know? And uh, so um, I think he, you know, for the most part, I was surrounded by people that believed me for the most part. Yes. I don't think that anyone could quite understand what I was going through, you know? And I think that's a big part of this that is hard, you know, is that, even the most empathetic people have a hard time really wrapping their heads around what we're dealing with when we're going through this. So that's a challenge, but, um, I do feel like I was believed. Yes. By my friends and family. Yeah. And Julie, you mentioned when you now followed up with Dr. Werner, I believe you said his name was that mm -hmm. he did additional lab work and that's yep. when you did the other co-infection panel. So was right. this through Igenix as well? And if so, yep. what were the co-infections that popped on that test? Yeah. So yes, it was through Igenix. Um, and I was positive for, Babesia, Bartonella, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Chlamydia pneumonia, and Mycoplasma. So many, many, many of the known co-infections for a tick bite that we are able to test for, essentially. Yes. Yep. So, so talk to us about now the revised treatment protocol with Dr. Werner from the doxycycline to what your new protocol is. What exactly did you start off with Dr. Werner and how did you feel? I think one of the smartest things that he did was he immediately stopped me from antibiotics and he would not let me treat for a couple of months. He would not let me actively go after the Lyme for a couple of months. He was like, we need to get your body in a position where it can actually handle antibiotics. So I spent two months, uh, you know, 
basically opening up all my drainage pathways. You know, he had me start, you know, doing all kinds of things so that I was pooping regularly, you know, getting this stuff out of my body. He's had me start taking binders. He had me, uh, start doing liver support things. He, you know, so it was those first couple of months was, and I was, I remember being so frustrated with him. Like, no dude, I've got these really bad infections and we need to kill them yesterday. Like, I don't want to waste my time on this, you know, whatever (laughs) stupid stuff you've got me doing. I want to kill these infections. And he was like, Nope, we, you can't handle it right now. I I mean, the two months on doxycycline proved to me that your body can't handle it. So we need to do some other stuff first. So I went through that in that period of time, I felt significantly better because I was getting all of these toxins out of my body for the first time in years. Um, he had me stop, he and the other naturopath had me stop eating, you know, inflammatory foods like gluten and dairy and sugar. Um, you know, they recommended I kick, kick the alcohol, which yeah, I did for the most part, you know, cause I can't, it's a problem. I do enjoy it, but you know, I got rid of it for the most part. Um, and then a couple months later, that's when we started doing, uh, you know, actual going after the infections of sorts, going into the kill phase. And that did include for me, many antibiotics. Okay. So Julie, I want to stop you there. So yep. Many people, I'm trying to identify patterns, you know, what we, Rich and I try to do here is identify patterns to success. And you are yeah. clearly one of them. You went from being yeah. bedbound for years with Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, Mycoplasma, and more, I'm sure that you didn't even know about, to being in remission and staying in remission today. So we're really trying to hone in here on what worked for you. And another pattern we're seeing that others in the community that have had success did is not start with killing, but opening up your drainage pathways and preparing your body for the treatment. Because we do know if you treat too aggressively without doing that, you can actually make yourself even more sick and have and have a more major setback than you're at, you know, at that point, right? So, yep. but I, what I want to explore with you is what exactly did you do? Because we hear this a lot, but we don't really get a lot of the details. What did you do to prepare yourself for the treatment? You mentioned opening up drainage pathways and you mentioned binders and you mentioned liver support. But what, what exactly does liver support mean? Is that herbs? And if so, what type of herbs? What binders did you do? We know there's activated charcoal, there's chlorella. You know, give us some more detail about what you did during this phase so our listeners can absorb this and bring this to their practitioners as possible options for themselves. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked us. And this is honestly, as now being a health coach, I really am a Lyme coach. I don't really, I, I barely consider myself a health coach um, and really kind of pigeonholing that even more. Most of what I do is Herxheimer support coach and that's detox and drainage pathways and reducing inflammation. So whether it's the things that I did and, or the things that I recommend now, it's a fuzzy area in my mind, but we can talk about it generally of like what I think I remember I did, what I still do to this day and what I, I recommend that people do. Um, so, you know, getting somebody to start pooping is like the number one thing. If you are not pooping, that is like your first drainage pathway. And you are going to feel crummy as heck when you're going through treatment, if you are not actually having bowel movements one to three times a day. So, um, in my, Julie, case, can, I ask, can I interrupt you again? I'm sorry. Yeah. Just, there's a lot of good information here and, and you're clearly very smart. We want to pick your brain a lot. So we've heard from various people that once a day is enough. And we've heard from other people say that if you're going, you know, three, four, five times a day, that's too much. And there can be a thing as going too much. So what do you think is the proper balance? You said one to three, but yeah. do you think that three could be on the, on the, on the high side? What's ideal? Is it once? Is it twice? Is it three times? Three to four times is excessive if it's not a well-formed stool. So if you're having diarrhea three or four times a day, you are likely going to be dehydrated. So that is a problem. 
Um, if you are having a bowel movement three times a day, that is sort of like the color of cardboard and soft, but formed. Um, and that is happening mostly after you eat meals. That is like the ideal scenario. I don't know many people that are starting out there, but like, that's the goal, right? Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not like a super clear thing. If you're having one good regular bowel movement a day and getting most of this stuff out. Okay, great. I don't want to push you into the land of diarrhea because that's, that's too much. We're not going to, that that's going to be problematic as well. So it's trying to find that right thing for each person. And Julie, how do you accomplish that? So if somebody is yeah. listening and they're going, well, I go maybe once every three days, right. what type of support, whether it be through binders or herbs or whatever it may be, what kind of tools do you recommend for people to become regular and have that you know, one to three times of regular consistency, color and shape stool movement or bowel movement? Yep. Um, so there's, a, I love cheap and easy and things you can do at home that will make you more successful while being really safe. So one of my favorite things are castor oil packs. Uh, you can get a castor oil pack online for anywhere from 25 to $50. And, uh, you can use it for both liver support and for constipation issues. You can also use it for menstrual cramps. You can also use it for uh, swollen lymph nodes. There's a lot of things you can use it for. So you buy this thing for 40, 50 bucks and you can use it for a number of things. So in the case of constipation, you get a castor oil pack. There's a couple different types, but essentially you're using a piece of material that has an oil on it. It is a sticky, thick oil that you put on this piece of fabric and you lay it over your abdomen where your digestive tract is and you keep it on for an hour. And that um, helps kind of like soften up your stool so that you can have have more regular bowel movements. Um, another thing I'm a big fan of is doing Julie, dry... I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump back again. How Please. does that work? Is the oil absorbed in through your skin, which it then is. gets absorbed into the liver, which helps your liver process and have more regular normal bowel movements. So in the case of the liver, if you put it over your liver, yes, it does absorb through your skin into your liver and basically softens up any congestion and stuff that's in your liver, which is again with the bowel movements, like a number one thing that you need to be doing if you are treating Lyme disease. I don't even think, not even if you're treating Lyme disease, if you're a human on planet earth in modern America, you need to make sure that your liver is flushing appropriately. None of ours are, we're exposed to so much toxic stuff. So a castor oil pack on your liver. Um, so upper right quadrant of your abdomen, um, will soften up your, um, the congestion in your liver and gallbladder. So that gets flushed out. That's one of the number one places that these toxins from Lyme and mold kind of get filtered through. And it causes a lot more problems in the case of using it for constipation and putting it directly over your digestive tract. Same principle. My understanding is that there's something, I think it's called malic acid is sort of like this chemical that's in castor oil. It absorbs through the skin and into your digestive tract and softens softens things up. It's also an apple juice. So this is like why they give kids apple juice as um, to help them if they're constipated. It's like the, the same thing. So we don't want all the sugar. So we tell you to get a castor oil pack instead. So Julie, I think I, I interrupted you and I apologize. You're giving us so much good information here. You were about to go on, I believe, to another method besides yes. castor oil to help become more regular. Yes. Um, dry brushing. So a dry brush is basically, you can get one on Amazon for, I don't know, eight to $10. Um, it is a, uh, oval shaped brush that has a wooden back and short sort of stiff bristles. 
And there's a number of videos online that you can watch that are for um, how to dry brush, but essentially you use this dry brush all over your body to help your lymphatic system move. And we know that that's a big part of detoxification. We know that's a big part of your immune system. And so if you specifically focus on dry brushing around your digestive tract, you can look up for videos. There's a million videos of like how to dry brush for constipation. And it's literally like a circular movement that helps move the lymphatic system. That's the lymph that's around your digestive tract to help move things out. Just and it's stimulating to that area. So, yeah. So beyond, um, beyond having regular bowel movements, which is obviously a very important step to be able to and correct me if I'm wrong. So the, the, the reason why this is so important is because as you begin to introduce the kill protocols, you need to be able to purge the die off or the toxins that are released as you kill the, the toxins, the, um, the bacteria, viruses, et cetera, in your body. Correct. Absolutely. Yep. That's it. So your doctor was, was, was trying to get you prepared for this. And now you're, you're starting to get more regular bowel movements. And you mentioned there's some other things too, like, like binders. So what kind of binders are you using or what kind of binders do you recommend in general and how do they work? Yeah. Um, so binders are basically like sponges. So they're different substances that just like soak things up. And so there's a couple of different kinds that we kind of, uh, look at, we look at systemic binders and we look at digestive binders. And so digestive binders are things like clay, chlorella, activated charcoal that you take through a pill. And once that thing is in your digestive tract, it soaks up bad stuff. Well, I mean, it soaks up anything. I mean, I, my understanding is that they're non-discriminatory. They just are little sponges. So they can soak up good things. If you take a binder near food or medication, it can sop up that stuff, which obviously you wouldn't want. Um, but if you take them on an empty stomach, which is what you're supposed to do, um, it basically sops up these toxins that are in your digestive tract that end up there as the, um, all the die off of the bacteria and stuff. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, the company that I used, I co-founded that I no longer work for, but I just still love their products. And they were such a huge part of my healing, uh, which is return healthy. Their binder is called binder blend. I'm really big on alliteration. So all of the product names are like, start with the same name. So binder blend is their binder. Um, and I love that one for, for lime and mold. Um, then there's also systemic binders, which I didn't really know about or get into until like the last couple of years. And so these are binders that are different types of substances. I think, uh, fulvic acid and humic acid are the big ones. And those are things that bind up toxins in the bloodstream still. Um, and I, I, the big one that people like, there's one, I think Cellcor is a company that does one. Um, I use one that's called GI detox. So even though it's really called GI detox, it does have like a, it's a more full spectrum binder, um, is another one. That's really a good product that we recommend a lot that I recommend a lot. So I'm just curious about the use of binders because they're for me personally, when I first started using binders, I mean, I went from being on, um, I take the restore kit by Dr. Rolls and I mean, mm -hmm. not to be too TMI here, but I am super regular, same, you know, again, very, very regular and consistent. I'll leave it at that. I went from being, you know, months and months and months of that to being constipated, which I yeah. have never experienced, you know, on, on the, the, the restore kit by Dr. Rolls. 
Then it went from that to becoming like just really bad diarrhea to becoming normal again. So why do you think something like that would happen when you take a binder, you know, or am I an anomaly with that regard? No, no, no. The constipation is actually really common. The diarrhea, I don't hear of as much, and I'm not really sure what that's about, but uh, the constipation is very common because again, it is a sponge and it's soaking up things. And so that stuff can be like impacting in your um, digestive tract. So that is common. Um, and so that's why it's like, it is tricky if people already have constipation and then we put them on a binder, um, it can, you know, make that problem worse. So we definitely have to keep an eye on that. That's why I always recommend other supportive things to help keep, get this stuff out and flowing. So the dry brushing, the castor oil packs, a high fiber diet, um, coffee enemas are just absolutely one of my favorite tricks out there. And the look on people's faces, when I tell them I want them to put coffee in their butt is just so priceless. It makes it worth doing this job, but it's so effective. It is just, I still do them. So I will notice that, um, you know, I'm in remission from Lyme. I have been for four years. Um, and, but I will notice like, I mean, I live in, I live in Chicago. I live on a busy street under, uh, you know, not so far from the airport, the airplanes fly right over my house, you know, the air quality, fortunately I've got a million air purifiers that help with air quality and, um, mold, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in a city I'm exposed to toxins. I sit, I'm sitting on a desk that is made out of some sort of pressed wood. Like it's just everywhere in my life. So I, um, will notice like that I will get certain things that I'm just like, Oh, I think I might be a little toxic. I should probably, you know, and maybe like once a month, I still do a coffee enema because it just makes me feel so much better. Um, and so I'm happy to talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, a coffee enema is essentially like you buy a coffee or an enema kit on, um, you know, you can buy it anywhere. I mean, Amazon, other health food stores and stuff like that. And you uh, make a certain type of coffee, organic, ideally mold-free, and you drip coffee into your rectum. And uh, the benefit of this is that by using coffee instead of just water, it, uh, the caffeine is, is dilates your blood vessels. And so by putting it into your rectum, it dilates the blood vessels all through your digestive tract. And in theory, I don't know if there's any studies that have proven this, but um, this was developed by a cancer doctor named uh, Dr. Gerson. And so in theory, it can actually dilate the blood vessels, the biliary vessels in your liver and gallbladder and help flush that stuff out. And so not only are you actually creating a flush of stool. So you're getting a bowel movement out of it. You're going to poop after you do a coffee enema, but if you do it correctly, then you will also get a liver flush. And that's when you get the real big benefits. It doesn't feel great when it happens. Like there's a moment where you get that feeling of sort of like clammy and like you're about to have diarrhea, that kind of gut cramp and stuff. It's, you know, I, I, I have to really prep people for what this process could look like when they're going to do it and what time it takes and when they should do it and so forth. But once that dump comes out, <laughs> that liver dump, I want to say, but it really is a full dump. Um, the results are for me amazing. So if I start having brain fog, I start feeling fatigued. Um, that's one of the first things that I turn to. And it was one of the key things in helping me heal from Lyme, um, that I still, I still use regularly. And it's, I mean, it just really like my eyes light up after I do it. I just feel so much better. So Julie, before moving on throughout the rest of your journey, I do want to focus on the different types of binders. Cause we haven't heard this before on the podcast. 
digestive binders versus systemic binders. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people listening are probably thinking, well, Lyme is usually in your bloodstream, but we know it can also be in your brain, in your heart, and in your tissue. So when we talk about these digestive digestive binders, I feel like we're, we're maybe thinking more of the systemic binders because that's where the, the Lyme bacteria may be more. So why are digestive binders used so commonly in the Lyme community when somebody would think, well, it's really more in my blood and in my tissues, I might want to be using a systemic binder instead? Um, I, I, I think that really what we're trying to accomplish with binders is to capture the toxins when they die off and not the actual bacteria. So we know that the Lyme bacteria, I mean, they really don't hang out in the bloodstream very long. Like they hide, this is their survival mechanism. Like the reason blood tests, one of the reasons blood tests are so bad for them for testing for Lyme is because it's just not in the blood. It's hiding out in tissues. Um, so we're really looking at binders for the die off the Herxheimer reaction. So we know that whenever you do something to kill a bacteria or a pathogen, whether that's, you know, antibiotics or herbs or ozone. Um, and I believe even if your own immune system kills these things, you get a big die off reaction. There's toxins that are just flooded throughout your entire body. And that's what makes you feel crummy. So like when you get a flu, like it, I, my understanding is it's not the virus that makes you feel bad. It's your immune system killing the virus that makes you feel so bad. And so I think it's the same, it's the same thing with Lyme. So when we're talking about binders, we're talking about trapping the toxins when you kill them so that it gets out. It's also the same thing with mold. So in my case, where I was taking binders before I was treating the Lyme, he was having me take the binders at that point in time, just try to get some of this mold out of my body. So when you say that, Julie, the binders will actually get rid of active mold. So it's not just so the binders are used to get rid of the die off of the Lyme bacteria, but they can also pull out active mold that's keeping you sick. I'm not sure if it's active mold specifically, but it's mold toxins. Yes. And those mold toxins are the things that are keeping you sick. Yeah. And just to In clarify, so when, when, when we kill and the, and the bacteria or viruses, et cetera, get killed from our, our tissues, our bloodstream, et cetera, that will then end up in your liver and your digestive tract. And that's why we used these digestive binders. So commonly in the Lyme community is what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. So we basically stop them up with a binder so that they don't get recirculated into your bloodstream. So talk to us now about the kill part of your protocol. So we, we went into pretty great detail about the prep phase. What did you start to do when you, and I guess how long, I think you mentioned you were on the prep phase for about a few months, correct? Yeah, a month or two months, I want to say something like that. Yeah, two months. And then once you started the kill phase, did you gradually introduce the kill protocols or did you hit it pretty hard at that point with, with the treatment? Hit it pretty hard with the treatment. Yeah, when I was ready to go, I was like, I'm ready to go. Like I'm done with this. I was also very naive in that situation too, where I thought, you know, a few months and I'm going to be done with this. I really had no idea going into my Lyme treatment that this could take years. And in my case, it did take years. Um, and, you know, I wonder if that's because my doctor didn't know, you know, he does, we don't know how long it's going to take for certain people. Right. Um, but yeah, I hit it pretty hard. I went in with, um, a number of antibiotics and antimalarials. And so the antimalarials in my case were for Babesia, Babesia really was my problem. I mean, Lyme wasn't good. Right. Um, and the co-infections weren't good, but the thing that was like absolutely killing me was Babesia. I mean, I was having night sweats and like my spleen seemed to be getting attacked by the Babesia and, um, I was having such severe air hunger. I just never felt like I could get a deep breath. So for me, like symptomatically, I was so bad with Babesia that I was really hitting it hard with anti-malarials like Mepron and Malarone and then ozone, IV ozone. 
Um, so in the period of time that I'm in the kill phase for Lyme, it was, I think I was on antibiotics and herbs, uh, actively killing Lyme for 20 months, I believe. And at, throughout that period of time, I was on two to five quote unquote killers, whether that was antibiotics or herbs, um, at any given time throughout that whole period of time. So it was, it was a lot. Julie, you mentioned that the Babesia was your worst and we know about night sweats. We, I think many of us have experienced them and the air hunger, which I think many of us have experienced as well. But how did you know that the, that the Babesia was attacking your spleen? What symptomology did you present that made you, you know, that, that brought you to that conclusion? Um, it was something that my doctor mentioned. I don't remember feeling it. I think maybe some lab tests or maybe it was an assumption on his behalf. That was it. I mean, I don't remember feeling like something like a pain or something that led me to believe it was a spleen issue, but it was a concern that he was keeping an eye on for sure. My doctor, I mean. And Julie, did you still herx, even though you prepped your body for two months with all of these things that we talked about earlier? Oh, did I ever. Did I ever, um, I mean, honestly, Herxine, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, those were the dark days. Um, I, you know, Herxine almost killed me a couple of times. Um, I had a couple of bouts of such severe Herxine that, uh, you know, I'm one of these people and I see this a lot in Lyme patients. Again, like I said, I was like, I'm going to do everything you tell me to doctor. I'm going to be a guard, you know, I'm taking all the meds. I'm going to be perfect. I'm doing all the things. Um, and I went too hard too often because I was like, I just want to muscle through this. I don't care if it sucks now. Cause I want to get my life back. But unfortunately that almost, that hurt me, that hurt me in cases. And so I had a couple of bouts of encephalitis. So swelling in the brain, um, relatively mild, but any encephalitis is not a good encephalitis. Um, and I went through a few periods of time where I went through extended periods of encephalitis going kind of in and out of the hospital, um, and, uh, yeah, by that, I definitely thought I was going to die during that period of time. It was bad. I mean, I wrote letters to family. I put my living will together. I thought that was it. I thought I was done. So Julie, talk to us about the encephalitis. So we know that that's really brain swelling and brain inflammation, but we've had a lot of people recently actually talk to us about, you know, they're treating and they, they did what you, you did as well. They prepped their bodies, but they, I guess they hit it too hard from a kill standpoint and they developed encephalitis. Now, what did you do to overcome that? Because many people are trying a wide variety of things and they're not having success when they do develop encephalitis. So how did you overcome that, that I guess I'll call it consequence of, right. of, of hitting the killing protocol too aggressively? I mean, I had to stop treatment. So I had to stop antibiotics entirely, anything that would kill the bacteria for a period of time um, to allow this, my system to cool down. I mean, that was like the number one thing that had to happen. I could not take antibiotics, do ozone or take herbs that were going to kill infections until my system cooled down. Um, and then ramping up the detox stuff even more to get those toxins out. So in my case, we believe that the encephalitis was caused by this major inflammatory response where my body could not get all of these toxins from the mold and the Lyme and co-infections out of my body fast enough. And that inflammation led to swelling in my brain. Um, so yeah, stopping treatment for a bit, which is frustrating. Cause you think like, oh gosh, now I'm, I don't want this disease to progress. I don't want to stop treatment, but it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And this is something that I have to coach people on all the time. It's like, this is just kind of part of the process and, and when, and why that happens. We honestly, we don't know. I mean, you could just one day start taking a biofilm buster and the biofilms will bust up and all these Lyme bacteria are hiding out in there and the antibiotics you're on kill it and the toxins go crazy and you just can't get them out fast enough. We don't really know. 
I mean, it's, it's just so sporadic. Um, but yeah, so stopping treatment, lots of anti-inflammatories. Um, I I'm a big fan of natural anti-inflammatories, um, everything from like turmeric and frankincense and, uh, drinking ginger tea and Alka-Seltzer gold and a low inflammatory diet, um, all of these things to help, you know, kind of cool the system down, uh, and to kind of wait it out. So Julie, talk to us about your position on Herxin, because it sounds like you Herx to a point where it literally almost killed you possibly. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have differing opinions where they feel Herxing is good and the more aggressive the Herx, the better off they are. And other people feel that Herxing can be very dangerous and actually cause you to go backwards in your healing journey. So where do you, where do you stand, you know, in that whole debate of Herxing is good or bad? Uh, I think both. Um, so this is a big part of like, I've, I've created all these different pieces of documentation for the clients that I work with. And this is one of the first things that we cover is like how to assess a Herxheimer reaction, what to expect. Right. So in a lot of respects, um, if you're starting to Herx, it's good information for us as practitioners, right? Like your doctor and me as a health coach, we're like, Oh, okay. You added in minocycline. We know that specifically goes after Lyme and you had a really big Herx okay, you definitely have Lyme active in your system, right? So it's good information for us to kind of like know what's going on with you, but we don't want you getting to that point of whatever I was with encephalitis. So there is what I kind of like, I teach people how to find a Goldilocks spot. What is that sweet spot in the middle? So you're having a Herx. It's sort of mild to medium, right? We're getting good information. We know that the treatment's working. We're assessing it as we go so that we can increase detoxification and do things for inflammation as we go. And then all of a sudden, maybe you have a spike. Okay. That's too much. You need to contact your doctor and see if that you can get, you know, to take a break from your medications or what else you need to do. So, um, I do think that a severe Herxheimer reaction can harm the patient more than, or person more than it can help them. But I think that a mild to medium Herxheimer reaction is sort of to be expected and sort of good information. So there's a happy balance essentially where yes. you want to, you know, and, and, you know, Dr. Dr. Moore did a, a um, Instagram live recently that really stuck out with me. And he said, you know, if you're experiencing a 10% increase in symptomology while you're treating, you know, keep going. That's okay. Yeah. As long as yep. you can tolerate it. If you hit the 20% mark, you're probably at the high end where you start, well, you may want to start considering pulling back and working with your doctor to pull back. He said, but you know, your body best. And I think that, you know, that thought process is very much in line with yours, where there's a happy medium where Herx can be helpful because you're actually doing some good work there, but it also can cause harm if it's too extreme. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I basically break it down for people in like a, if you're still functioning, you're noticing something, right? You're noticing an increase in symptoms of existing symptoms, flu-like symptoms, emotional symptoms. I think that's one that's often overlooked. People suddenly get very anxious. They get weepy and sad. Um, That can be a Herxheimer reaction. So, you know, if you're noticing a mild increase in these symptoms, Yeah, but you're still functional. You can still go to work. You can still like do whatever it was you were doing before, which for some of that us is not a lot, right? Like in my case, when I started doing this, it was like, well, I mean, what is functional? I'm not a functional now. So how much, you know, what can I tolerate? But again, like, I think to your point, Matt, is that, um, it's, it's just sort of like knowing what's going on with your body and your sense of like intuition of what is good and bad, right? Like when you cross over a line between like, I've had a mild increase and this is to be expected to like something seems really off. This is not right. You know, in my case, like that 
encephalitis. I was having like um, stroke like symptoms. I mean, I couldn't say words out loud. I couldn't use my legs. I, my, you know, I got Bell's palsy, my face drooped. Um, that was it. I thought that was it. You know, I had no idea that it could be that severe and of no fault to my doctor in any way, shape or form. I was doing the same thing at those points in time that I'd been doing for months. And then all of a sudden, right. It could, it could have been, it could have been, you busted a biofilm, like you said, right. right? And that's especially in the brain, we can have biofilms and that could be very, very detrimental to your health. If you have a biofilm, a big one breaking your brain, but I do want to, I do want to touch on a similar topic here, which is something we've recently learned and, and coin the term retracing. So for me, it's, it's kind of very similar. So when you have a Herx, you have a, you have an increase in your symptomology and that's where you have to have that happy, you know, happy middle ground. But retracing is another kind of interesting concept where you have symptoms that you had maybe years ago that you got rid of come back as you're digging deep and pulling stuff out and healing. And as you're doing that deep healing and people may get confused thinking they're having a major setback, but it could just be that you're retracing, quote unquote, or, or you're acting, pulling that out to actually heal. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think retracing is a, is a real thing where, you know, a symptom you may, you may have had five years ago that was so deep within you is now being brought out by aggressive treatment possibly? I mean, I've never heard the term and I love it. I mean, that makes sense. Um, when I talk to folks about this, yeah, it happens all the time. You know, that thing that you got rid of years ago in the first month of treatment, all of a sudden shoots back up. I think the challenging thing is, is that like these bugs, these infections that we have in our body, they've got life cycles, right? Like they're not just like on a steady pace, right? They're like, they're trying to reproduce as much as they possibly can to stay alive in your body. And so whether that increase of a symptom that you had a long time ago, coming back, whether it's a herx or it's a flare up of symptoms because that infection came back or is, you know, become more um, prevalent. It's hard to say, but it's yeah, absolutely a thing. So talk to us, Julie, more about specifically what you did. So you told us that, you know, ozone was sounds like was an important part from a killing from a bacterial and viral standpoint. And you also used, um, Mepron and Malarone from Babesia as well. Yep. And you mentioned you use other antibiotics, a wide variety of them and herbs. So what yep. other antibiotics and herbs did you use during this 20 month period where you were in your kill phase? Um, so there was some going back to doxycycline at certain points. There was minocycline, clarithromycin, uh, clindamycin, I believe, um, Mepron, Malarone. Um, I did some Dapsone. Um, when I was getting into remission, Dapsone had just been kind of like came on the scene. So I'd only done Dapsone for maybe the last like three months of my treatment. And I was pretty close to remission at that point anyways. Um, and yeah, that's for the antibiotics. That's what I did. A variety of herbs. I mean, um, everything from cryptolepis for Babesia, artemisinin, um, Japanese knotweed root, uh, yeah. A lot of the sort of like Buner protocol type of herbs were a big part of it, which I, I mean, I think herbs are great. I think you know, some people come into this and they're like, I just don't want to do antibiotics. I just, I can't do, I can't tolerate it. And I just want to do herbs. I'm like, cool. It might take a little longer. That's usually what I see that it takes a little bit longer, but it works. And the cool thing is about herbs is that, you know, you, you take an herb for killing Lyme or Babesia, but it's also like, reducing inflammation and supporting your liver and supporting your lymphatic system. And it makes your skin look amazing. And you know what I mean? It's like, it's just interesting, right? Like there really are so much more synergistic with our bodies. Um, but again, I took antibiotics. They saved my life. Would I do it again? Absolutely. So Julie, talk to us about if you had a look back in that 20 month window, was there any 
any particular antibiotic or herb or treatment like possibly ozone that you felt was a real game changer that when you started it, you realized within a short period of time that you had a significant improvement in your symptoms? Yeah, ozone. I, I, I feel like if you looked at my, my cells under a microscope, it would be like half ozone and half phosphatidylcholine. Like that's what I'm made of and coffee, but, um, ozone for me, like I didn't start doing phosphatidylcholine till like just in the last couple of years, once I was in remission or close to remission. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit, but in that acute period of time, ozone was like the game changer for me. And so I was doing a lot of, um, IV ozone. So, uh, major auto hemotherapy. Um, and for those, the, uh, for the Babesia symptoms, absolutely. Like that was the thing that really was, you know, really worked for me and it gave me energy and I felt good while doing it. And I would hurt from it, but, um, that was the thing that was like a noticeable, um, improvement to the point where I got my own ozone machine and I still have it to this day. And I do home, not IVs. That's, that's beyond my, um, level of, uh, sophistication, but I do other ozone treatments at home still. What types of, what types of ozone treatments do you, I know there's a wide variety of ways to use ozone. How do you use them at home personally? So I mostly was doing saunas. So you do a wet sauna and you do ozone application to the sauna and the, by getting your skin moist, the ozone is able to absorb through your skin. So it's like a real nice systemic application to it. And it feels a lot, um, gentler than maybe like, uh, doing an IV, um, I was doing ear insufflations. So you get like almost what looks like a stethoscope and you, (laughs) I was like, my brain is the biggest problem. Like I have so much brain fog and headaches. I'm like, can I just pump this stuff directly into the source? You know, like how do I get right to my brain? So I had, I would do ear insufflations. Um, I did rectal insufflations. They say that rectal insufflations are almost as effective as IV insufflations. So I think that's sort of interesting, but it's not an easy thing to do. It's not for the faint of heart. You definitely need to either, if you're having brain fog, like I was, I had to have some people like smart people in my life, kind of like review my math and make sure that like what I was applying was appropriate because it is not easy. So I wouldn't recommend that everyone just go out and buy an ozone machine and like start doing it at home because it can be dangerous. And if you inhale it, you're going to have problems and you can overdo it. But um, yes, but I do love it. I think it's super interesting and very effective. So Julie, some people have told us that when they use ozone, it actually oxygenates your blood and Babesia thrives in a high oxygen environment. But you had said that ozone helped you with your Babesia. So what are your thoughts on, on the comment I just made? Yeah. So my understanding is the way that, um, ozone works. So ozone is three O's. So three oxygen molecules and the air we breathe is two oxygen molecules. So my understanding is that Babesia thrives in O2 by adding O3, that third oxygen molecule makes the molecule highly volatile. And that molecule wants to get rid of that single ozone molecule very quickly. And that single molecule is for whatever reason, very good at attacking um, all kinds of pathogens, including viruses, um, bacteria, and parasites, which Babesia is. That's sort of just my guess on why it works for Babesia, because it's not the O2 part that's going after the Babesia. It's the single oxygen molecule that is looking to, that's kind of floating around trying to find something to go nuts on. So I think just for my own clarification, oxygen or O2 is something that allows Babesia to flourish. But when you have O3, which is ozone, that single oxygen molecule, which is the third one, is what goes around looking for Babesia to kill it essentially. So that's why it's effective. 
theory. So that's my theory. <laughs> it I makes mean, sense. I mean, it's great. like if I put all the things together, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. No, it, it makes, yeah. definitely makes sense. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 so, so talk to us more about, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, the phosphatidylcholine. I know that's an yeah. IV, but what is it? And how yeah. did you mentioned it was really powerful. So what is it yeah. and how did it help you? Yeah. Phosphatidylcholine, people call it PC. It's much easier. I just love the big word. And um, so sometimes I just like to say it because it makes me feel like my brain is doing things again, which it wasn't for such a long time. Um, phosphatidylcholine is a uh, phospholipid. Um, so it's a, it's basically like a fat and it's what the outer membrane of our cells are made out of. And so there's a protocol called Patricia Kane protocol that um, PC phosphatidylcholine is a big part of. Um, my first Lyme doctor and former business partner, Dr. Vosloo, Werner Vosloo, um, it, it specializes in that now. He does a lot of PK protocol. So, I mean, I, I working for him, I got a lot of it, you know, for free or, you know, cost or whatever. So it, it can be very expensive. Um, I was lucky in that way of, I was sort of like a work trade. Um, and so really what it does is that protocol specifically, it, um, has a few components to it and it, it's a first, a chemical that goes into your cells. I think it's butyrate it goes into your cells and sort of like washes out all of these like toxins that come into the middle of cells. I mean, the way he describes it is sort of like, it kind of like washes off your DNA and then you add the phosphatidylcholine to it. And that sort of re-encapsulates your cells as like the outside of a cell and puts your cell back together in a way that it is healthy and functioning. It doesn't have all these holes in it that like toxins can move in and out of and be destructive to. So I've done it as both PK protocol where there's butyrate and phosphatidylcholine, and then like, um, you know, maybe some like minerals and stuff in there. And then I've done it as just phosphatidylcholine. And it's just like a really good, it, it's really stabilizing to the cells. It's really good for your nervous system. Um, my understanding is, is that it will work on all cell types except for bone cell, I believe. So nerve cells, brain cells, blood cells, like it actually can help re-encapsulate cells. Um, so for folks that are having neurological issues, it can be really powerful. It's actually used on MS a lot. Um, so not even Lyme, but MS and other, you know, illnesses. Um, it is really great for your liver for, so your liver cells can help re regenerate faster. So that's, that's one that is also, um, something and I've probably done. Ugh, I, I would, if I had to guess at least 30 to 40 IVs of phosphatidylcholine, it's a lot. So I do really want to come back to the topic of mold because mo I mean, mold illness is just so I think important and not talked about enough in the community. And we, you know, we, we've learned from many of the top doctors that mold will keep you sick from Lyme if you don't address it, that mold is a contributing factor to cause chronic illness and chronic Lyme disease. So what else have you done besides using binders like, like activated charcoal and chlorella to address mold? Because as you noted, you know, it's almost impossible to avoid mold altogether in our daily lives. Yeah. So I kind of think of it as sort of like external and internal. So internally, you know, making sure that my liver functions really well is a big part of it. So again, like the coffee enemas are uh, you know, something that's really helpful if you're suffering from mold for the most part, um, supplementing things like glutathione. So the coffee enema will actually tell your body to produce more glutathione naturally. But, uh, you know, at this point, I think most of us probably could you know, there's not enough glutathione, um, for a lot of us, you know, we're very deficient in it. So you could supplement glutathione via either IV or through oral supplements. Um, so those are some of the things that you can do to like get the mold out internally. And then as far as, um, you know, external exposure to it, I, I mean, 
I do a few things. So I have air purifiers, true HEPA filters that can actually filter out mold. I've got, uh, I've got, I live in a one bedroom apartment and I've got two of them. So, um, I'm, I'm hitting it pretty hard with the air purification. Um, I get a leak in my car that causes it to get musty. And so I spray my car with EC3 spray. So, um, EC3 is like this really natural citrus derived. Um, it's not even a chemical, it's very natural and it like binds to mold. And so it, I think it kills the mold is my understanding. Um, so I spray EC3 in my car. I fogged my apartment with EC3 not my current apartment, but a previous moldy apartment that I've had EC3 also makes candles. And so you can like burn these little candles and it's supposed to get rid of mold in the air in like a small space. So I take those when I'm traveling and stuff. I don't know if it works. It may be placebo effect, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so the candles I think are cool. Um, you know, making sure that you don't live in a moldy place is pretty important, but I, I think that there's this sort of unrealistic idea that like, you know, if you get sick with mold or lime and mold that you have to move out of your house. I mean, yeah, ideally you would not be around mold, but when you're talking about folks that can barely afford treatment and you tell them that they've got to either one gut their house and it's going to cost $60,000 or they need to move out and they're not even able to work to pay for what, where they're living right now. It's just unrealistic. I think in a lot of ways, it, you know, ideally you won't be around the mold, but what if you work somewhere that has mold and you can't quit your job? So I'm really big on like, Hey, can we do air purification? Can we, you know, reduce exposure as much as possible? Um, and then can we also like do things to make sure it's getting out of our bodies? So it's interesting is this is we heard for the first time we heard about EC3 last week on a oh. podcast episode and you're bringing it up again. So I think, that's oh, yeah, a, certainly a sign here for us to explore further with that EC3. Great. Now, product. talk to us about so from from, you know, I, from a binder standpoint, I this past weekend, I did a deep dive on on a lot of different binders from from activated charcoal to chlorella, you name it. And some people were saying in the reviews that they were using it to address mold and bind the, the, the mold mycotoxins, but they got really sick from it. And it wasn't a lot of people, but it was, a, a, you know, it was a good percent to be noteworthy. Why do you think some people, when they take binders, whether it be chlorella or, or you know, activated charcoal, whatever it may be, get really sick? You think they're just, they're taking too much and they need to maybe ease into it? You know, I don't know. And I have heard this and I've never gotten to the bottom of it. It's, it's the same with, um, cholestyramine, which is the prescription mold binder that's used in mold protocols. Um, some people it's like, they just are detoxing too fast or it's, I'm not, I really don't know. I've never really gotten to the bottom of the why of it. You know, there's so many things in this world that we just don't know why, you know, I've, I have guesses and theories and gambles around a lot of things, but that's one that I just, I really don't know, but I do hear it. Yes, absolutely. And you're not the first to say it. And I've heard it number of times over the years. And I do want to bounce back because my brain's all over the place tonight. You're giving us a lot of good information. So for the EC3, I, many people come on this podcast or reach out to us privately and say, you know, my bathroom develops black mold. I can't help it. I have three daughters, you know, and it, it is what it is. Now, is that something that it's, it seems like it's a botanical or natural solution? Can that be sprayed in bathrooms almost, you know, prophylactically or preventatively to avoid mold in the home? Yeah, I'm sure it can. I mean, I've, I've done it prophylactically. So I have like in the car, I mean, before I, I just regularly spray it in my car. Cause I know it gets this little bit of a leak. Um, 
my understanding with mold is, is that if it, it, the problem is, is when it has a food source, right? The biggest problem, I guess what I would say is if it has a food source. So if you are, and by a food source, I mean something that mold can um, eat and grow off of. And so drywall is a big one. Wood is another big one. Any sort of porous surfaces um, are sort of ripe for getting mold. Um, but you know, of course, like we all get mold, like in the grout in our, you know, shower and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I mean, that's not good. You don't want to be like breathing that in, but, you know, cleaning that up and getting rid of it is relatively easy. Um, but it's when it's the black mold, or I mean, there's so many species of mold that are problematic. I mean, a lot of folks, it's not even the black mold. That's the problem. It's other molds that are the problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can, you can spray it on, I mean, you don't see anything. You can spray it right on drywall on ceilings and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I don't, I've never, it's, it's a great, a good idea for sure. If you, especially if you feel like there's like some sort of moistness, if you have a bathroom and, or an area that doesn't have good circulation, you know, and there's a lot of dampness in there. Yeah. It's probably a good idea. If you live in a house in the Pacific Northwest, like I did when I moved there, these houses or any house that's, you know, built when it's raining. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. So Julie, talk to us about now how you reach remission. At the end of this two-year window, when you finished the kill protocol, the wide variety of antibiotics, herbs, ozone, et cetera, were you in remission at the end of that 20-month period? Yeah, at about 20 months, I, you know, I went to my doctor and, you know, I mean, he still had me on protocols and I said, I think I'm done. I think I did it. I think I, I think I did it. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, I mostly feel good. I mean, I, you know, there's unfortunately with doing treatment, it's hard on the body. So, but I felt like it wasn't a Lyme or infection problem anymore. I felt like it was like, okay, well now let's clean up this mess. Right. And so intuitively, I just felt like I was at the end. And so I went to him and I said, I think I'm done. Can I stop the antibiotics? And he said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And, uh, so around 24 months, I think is when we determined I had not been taking treatment for three months or something like that. Um, and I, and my symptoms didn't come back and he said, okay, cool. Yeah. You're in remission. I said, great. Uh, unfortunately that's not the end of the road for me, but it was obviously a very big milestone. I mean, that was, um, I, it was definitely something to celebrate. I was very happy and proud that I had made it that far. Um, and you know, did a big thing to celebrate my accomplishment. So, and Rich is definitely going to talk about that big thing in your, yeah. in your, uh, shortly, but yep. I do want to ask, so this was, this was about six years ago, correct? So you were, you were in treatment um, for about two years. I was in no? treatment for about two years and I've been in remission for a little over four. And are you doing anything, you know, before Rich jumps in to, to talk about a lot of the cool stuff you've been doing now that you're in remission to help the community and raise awareness and just to be, to, you know, be celebrating life again. Is there anything you're doing from a maintenance standpoint to keep yourself in remission over the last six years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I did have one flare up in that period of time in the four years I, I did get divorced and I mean, you know, as good of a thing as that was, and as much relief around that as it was, I mean, there's a lot of emotions that go into that. It was, it was a 15 year relationship for me. So that was, that was stressful and stress is my biggest trigger. Um, and so I knew it was coming my doctor knew it was coming. We were ready for it when it happened. Um, I had a flare up of symptoms that lasted, I mean, like a month I did herbs. I didn't do any antibiotics that time and put it back in remission. So four years in remission, one little, like kind of tick up. Um, but about a year and a half ago, I was still having some symptoms. It wasn't Lyme symptoms, but it was more like digestive stuff and still some like brain fog and skin stuff. And so that's when around that, a little before that I had moved to Chicago 
And um, I really wanted an in-person Lyme doctor. I love my old Lyme doctor. Dr. Vosloo is brilliant. The man saved my life. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about him, but I just wanted somebody to like see here in Chicago and just for like having an integrative doctor moving forward. So that's when I started seeing Dr. Casey Kelly a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, she is brilliant. And if I had Lyme when I went to her, I'm sure she would have gotten me in remission. Um, but my Lyme was in remission when I started seeing her. And so what she and I focused on was the maintenance piece. So, um, a lot of gut repair from, you know, some of the microbiome damage from antibiotics, um, and sort of like leveling out hormones and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So yes, there definitely is maintenance. I have to be careful about stress more than probably anything else. Um, but also, you know, like food, I can't, you know, yesterday I ate something I probably shouldn't have. And this morning I felt a little off. I didn't feel great. So I have to be careful. I can't, I'm definitely not hundred percent carefree about my health. Um, like some people are, but it, to me, it's worth it. I, I, it, you know, I feel great. I feel better than I've probably felt in my entire life. And so, you know, little sacrifices are worth it for me. So. So Julie, one of the things we've observed is as we're working on our journey of achievement and we're working on overcoming these challenges, uh, the work that we're doing is also working on us. So talk yeah. to us about what you learned about yourself and how you were changed by this Lyme disease journey. Yeah. Oh, that's the, that's the real meat of it for me. Um, my, I'm not the same person I was before. I am a different person than I was before. Are there still things about me from before that still exist? Absolutely. Like there's still like good qualities of me that I had before that are, you know, still there, but um, the way I look at the world, the way I think about myself is just completely different. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I, I never had good self-confidence. I was always had very low self-esteem, uh, even though I was really successful, you know, I just never felt really okay with who I was as a person. And that stuff was gnawing at me for a really long time. And so, um, you know, getting into remission, making major life changes, I, you know, got divorced. I moved to Chicago. I, um, you know, I was living in Portland. So I moved back across the country. Um, I, you know, left the, one of the businesses that I started and I started another one and, um, just major, major changes within just sort of like the components of my life more than anything, I really, really dove deep into self work. And so I, <laughs> that whole, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on my self-healing work. I mean, the stuff that I've done, um, I have a lot of trauma in my past and then I have a lot of medical trauma and then I have Lyme disease, which is traumatizing. And so I came out of it really frazzled. I came out of it emotionally and psychologically very frazzled. Um, and so this last couple of years I have done, um, really deep trauma work, uh, with a trauma informed therapist doing somatic experiencing, um, a lot of like mind body connection work. Um, I've done some trials of psychedelics for PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Um, what psychedelics did you do? I did IV ketamine and I had some really great results with it. I mean, it was no, it was no joke. Um, yeah. I mean, if, for folks listening, ketamine is, a. I mean, it's used in uh, anesthesia um, and it's essentially a really strong tranquilizer, but it causes a euphoric effect. And so the idea is, is that you go into this hallucination essentially, where you're able to sort of like objectively look at things that have traumatized you and not have the emotional connection to them. And so by kind of 
pulling apart an event and the emotional reaction to it allows you kind of an opportunity to heal from it. Um, and, uh, I did a few, a few treatments of that. Um, it made me very sick, like nauseated sick, which, um, was the only reason I really stopped, but yeah, it was really incredible experience. And it was me and baby Yoda, like floating through outer space for an hour and like, just kind of talking to my demons and making, <laughs> making peace with them is, you know, I mean, again, uh, we kind of talked about this at the beginning, whatever it takes. Right. And I was willing to try some things and I knew that, uh, really getting getting to the core of who I am as a person and being okay with that person was really going to be the thing that was going to get me, keep me well, finish healing and get, keep me well. And now, you know, I am, I, I've suffered from anxiety, depression, and ADHD for 30 years, and I don't really have those symptoms anymore. Um, yeah, my focus is a little off sometimes from ADHD symptoms. I get a little anxious here and there, but all said, you know, I've, I've struggled with mental health my entire life that I remember really. And I don't anymore. It's unbelievable. Like I don't even, uh, it's not a thing for me anymore. So for me doing, you know, a number of things over the years that were focused on my mindset and healing my emotional and psycho psychological state were absolutely vital. And so that's the thing. And, and I haven't mentioned this as far as like going through the treatment program, you know, we talked about antibiotics and herbs and all this stuff. And yeah, that stuff was great. It worked. I needed it. But the, the thing that took me from slowly starting to heal to actually skyrocketing and really made the biggest difference in my healing was brain retraining. So, um, about 15 months into my treatment, I started DNRS, which is a limbic system retraining program. I'm sure you all are familiar with it. Um, but that was the thing where it was like, oh, I started sleeping and my pain went down and my immune system calmed down. Um, and then eventually I started following the meditations of Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, and he does a lot of like physical healing work with his meditations. I've attended some of his, um, his in-person events and sat there and meditated with thousands of people. Um, and then I've, uh, you know, I've done vital side, which is another limbic retraining program that was designed by a woman that has Lyme. Um, and she's a physician's assistant, another really great program. And then I kind of moved from all of that into doing more like, uh, trauma work and really like digging in deep to like my life's history. And so those are the things that I mean, you know, it's hard to say what, you know, if there's, there's no one thing that's going to get any of us well. Um, but going back to like, you know, talking about what's my nervous system in fight or flight. Yeah, it was permanently. I couldn't get out of it for a long time. And so doing these limbic system retraining programs and brain retraining and meditation and really focusing on my nervous system work and the brain body connection, that was the stuff that was really profound for me. And I, it's really profound for a lot of people. I mean, when I, the clients I work with, I mean, that's the stuff that's like huge. Right. So, so the game changer for you was the neural retraining. Now, yeah. why do you think that was a game changer? Do you think it's because you were stuck in fight or flight and because you were stuck in fight or flight, your body simply couldn't heal? Yeah, absolutely. So fight or flight, you can't heal in it. I mean, your body's resources are going to everything except for healing. And um, by doing limbic system retraining, you're basically calming yourself down out of that fight or flight and getting yourself into rest and digest, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And it's only possible for your body to heal and repair in that state. Um, and so I think what happens often, and I think this is part of what was happening for me while I was in treatment. And I see it for people every single day that I talk to that have Lyme, they're like, every pill I take, I have a huge reaction. Everything I do, I get really sick from it. And that to me is like, 
ding, 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 ding. Yeah, of course you're in fight or flight. Your body thinks everything is dangerous. So, yeah, I mean, even though those antibiotics like will kill the infections, if when you're going to take that antibiotic, you're afraid of it because you know, a Herxheimer reaction can happen or your system just perceives everything as danger, you're going to have a problem getting any good results out of it. Well, is that what it is, Julie? Or is it that you're, you're really just taking antibiotics or herbs or any other kill protocol to assist your immune system in reducing the microbes that it's going to have to fight off, but it's never going to, you know, the, the drugs or the herbs or whatever you're using to assist the system are never going to win the day. Your immune system ultimately has to succeed. So you can Absolutely. kill and kill and kill, but if your immune system is not ultimately going to take over and do the job, you're never going to get better. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely, that's it. I mean, the infections, we have to get the levels down and then we got to get your immune system functioning again. And how we get that to happen is a number of things, right? So definitely the antibiotics and the kill stuff, but also like, what do we, what do we do to make your body feel safe so that your immune system can function properly? So Julie, one of the things that I think uh, I've been struck by during the course of this entire really enjoyable podcast is that you always sort of had this desire for a purpose, but you never were able to discover a purpose. You were sort of floating and you went on this educational track. And when you're on the educational track, you even went to, you know, a school where you could study a, you know, a business protocol system that was, uh, that was sort of purpose driven, but you yourself could never find a purpose. And I'm wondering if you believe that you struggled with this sort of, you know, life adrift uh, because you were always in fight or flight. And it wasn't until you were able to complete the personal development elements of this journey where you could heal and then find a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that was part of it. I mean, looking back, it's one of those things I tell people all the time. I'm not grateful for having Lyme disease. I, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's terrible. It's cruel. It's awful. But I am thankful for my life now because of it. Right. And I'm stubborn and I'm hard headed and I'm a born cynic. And I think that unfortunately, I'm not sure I would have learned these lessons. Otherwise, you know, I knew innately that I wanted to do good, but I was in my own way constantly. And so yeah, unfortunately dealing with something like this really made smacked me in the face for what I needed to do to get my whole entire life back on track. Is that what it was? Or while you were stripping your body internally of, uh, of, disease, you were also stripping yourself of all of these challenges that you sort of like assumed, whether you pick them up through culture or your family or your educational system, but you finally stripped everything, including quite frankly, your marriage and yep. got to a point where you now had this pure soul that was created to perform a purpose that you could never do until you were stripped of both these internal and external um, uh, I guess internal and external baggage that you were carrying. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, there was a lot of toxic things in my life that I was able to get rid of, including the marriage. Um, and then including things like a perfectionist personality, you know, like I'm not like that anymore. Being able to just kind of shed all of these harmful ways of thinking about myself in the world is part of how I was able to heal. So now you, you said a little bit earlier that you never had confidence, despite being bright and, you know, going to, you know, ex accelerated schools and studying all over the world and being a very successful student and then a very successful, you know, employee and business developer, um, you never had any confidence. And is that because you just were just floating and you didn't have a purpose and because you didn't have a purpose, that gap between purpose and, and, and function were preventing you from feeling good about yourself and what you were doing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that I grew up with an idea that those things were the things that would make you um, feel good about yourself, like having money and having accolades and acclaim and degrees and certifications. And I mean, I look real good on paper. I've got all kinds of degrees and whatever, but none of that stuff ever made me feel good about who I was as a person. Like it, it was, I was what I, I was proud of it, but I wasn't like, that wasn't what I could be like, I'm a good person because I have all these degrees. And I've made this amount of money or something like that. And so I think I was just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it was really necessarily my parents or culture or society or whatever, but I just grew up with this idea that I would be good enough if I succeeded in these ways and I succeeded in all those ways. And I still did not feel good about myself and then had to look in and say, well, what, well, what is going on here? What is it that's actually going to make me feel good about? I mean, I always, like you said, I've, I've had this long running history of wanting to do good, but I never really fully like leaned into that purpose and actually was able to truly help people and do the things that I thought would fill me up and now do. Right. So. All right. So you, but you couldn't do that because you didn't love yourself. Right. So if right. you didn't love yourself, how are you going to love anyone else? Totally. Absolutely. So you finally got to this point where you discovered your purpose. You now love yourself and now you're able to help other people, right? You're yeah. able to now feel joy through helping other people. Um, so talk to us about some of the things you've done. For example, uh, the work that you did with raising money for Ride Out Lime. Well, for Live Lime. I'm sorry, live line. Yeah, for live line. So the money I, so uh, you can, this kind of circling back to my remission story. So I um, decided after I reached remission that I wanted to do something like kind of big and epic to like celebrate it, like prove to myself what I was capable of. Um, At the time I was living in Portland, Oregon. So I decided to climb Mount St. Helens. Um, And so Mount St. Helens was a 13 hour up and back mountain climb that I summited with my um, two siblings that were probably my biggest supporters in my entire, um, you know, journey with Lyme and treatment. I mean, they were just, I I don't know if I would have made it through without my brother and my sister Um, and one of my best friends. And we all climbed Mount St. Helens. Um, and I, I decided to turn it into a fundraiser for the live Lyme foundation. So the live Lyme foundation is a group that was started by a child that has Lyme disease. She's rather grown now. She might not be an adult quite yet, but she's close. Yes. We, we, we've interviewed uh, Olivia and, uh, and, and her mom, her mom on, on this podcast. Yeah. They're, you know, they're just wonderful people. Totally. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to do something grand and big. And I wanted to use it as an opportunity to talk about Lyme and raise money for specifically in this case, children that had Lyme. And so that's what I did. I climbed Mount St. Helens and we raised um, some money for the Live Lyme Foundation. And uh, it was quite an experience. So talk to us about how that made you feel and the fulfillment you got maybe for the first time in your life, now that you've accomplished something for others rather than uh, collecting degrees and other yeah. types of, um, you know, unfulfilling accolades. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, I, I it just, I mean, for my own self physically doing that, I'm, I mean, I'm an active person. Like I said, I've done triathlons. I've always moved a bit, but like climbing a mountain was never on my radar. This is a grueling mountain climb. It's not a super technical climb, but it is hand over feet, sharp boulders that are six feet tall. Um, you know, and then it is, 
oh gosh, this ash field where you one step in, two steps sunk back. I mean, just a grueling climb. And um, to get to the top, you summit over the backside of Mount St. Helens. And when you get to the, um, which is the south side, and it blew out the, the when it erupted, it blew out the north side. Um, so you, you don't really see anything much until you get to the summit. And then you get to the summit and you look into the crater and there's still like steam coming up and then dead ahead is Mount Rainier, which is one of the tallest mountains on the West coast. And so just like that accomplishment for myself physically was just, I mean, I just sobbed when I got up there on my hands and knees, absolutely just every emotion came out of me, you know, like it was just one of the most cathartic experiences of my life. I feel like I really left a lot up there. I just let it all out. And, um, for me personally, being able to physically accomplish something like that ever, let alone after dealing with a severe illness was just, that was a moment of pride where I was really, really happy with myself as a person, but then also being able to like send the pictures to Olivia and send a check to live Lime and say, like, we did this for you. We did this for kids like you. And, uh, you know, I mean, it felt amazing. Felt so amazing. So talk to us about how that laid the foundation for your career pivot, because you went from uh, went from these unfulfilling um, careers and this unfulfilling work, despite the success you had, to more fulfilling work, uh, first with one of your first Lyme doctors and now um, as a Lyme coach. I don't want to insult you by calling you a health coach. But as <laughs> a, a, health as a coach Lyme is coach. fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm certified as a health coach, but I really focus on Lyme. So yeah, I kind of am a Lyme coach. Um yeah. I mean, I first, you know, working with the supplement company was fantastic because I felt like it utilized all my business skills to like build this business that did help people. And a big part of me joining that project was I really wanted to make sure that we could give back to the community. So I started a grant program within Return Healthy that was for people that could not afford our products. So we'd have people sign up and every month we would send out like, I don't even know, thousands of dollars worth of supplements to people that had Lyme disease that couldn't afford them. And so that was kind of the beginning of like, okay, this feels really good and rewarding, but I wasn't you know, that was just sort of a small sliver of my job. And the rest of the day I'm doing business strategy and marketing and blah, blah, blah. And it was great. I mean, I love that company. I love the products. I have nothing sad, uh, bad to say about that, but I was like, I really want to work directly with people. Like I want to actually see the results. I want to have that experience with people. So that's why I went back and got certified as a health coach and, um, have been working this year, um, working directly with, uh, with people with Lyme disease. And that experience is just, it's really mind blowing because it's, um, you know, when you sit down with somebody that has never met anyone else that has had Lyme or anyone else that has gone through what they've gone through or somebody that just believes them, like the look on people's faces of that level of validation is just, I mean, most people cry. I mean, my first session with people, most people cry. It's kind of rare that they don't because they just feel so seen for the first time in their life or within this experience. Um, and it, it's mutually beneficial to me too and validating because, you know, I'm saying I understand them and they're saying they understand me. And it's like, yeah, this is real. This was a real thing that I went through and you're going through. And um, that's just a really powerful experience. So talk to us about or talk to our audience about how they could work with you and what are the different ways that you work with folks? Is it all direct or do you have any remote uh, support that you offer to people in the community? 
Yeah. So, um, I, if you're already a patient at case integrative health, which is Dr. Casey Kelly's practice, you can see me through that practice, um, and schedule through there. And I, uh, see people remotely and in person because of COVID it's mostly been remote. So, uh, we, I see people all over the country within that practice. And then I see people all over the country within my, uh, my own personal practice, which I is called get well with Julie. So it's get well with Julie.com is my website. It's also my social media handle. So I give, I, you know, I talk a lot about Lyme on my social media handles too. And just kind of like, what are the things that worked for me? And, you know, sometimes it's just like, praise for people too, and giving them a little bit of motivation, because I think anyone that's going through this, if you get up every day and keep fighting, I am just like incredibly proud of you because it's just so hard. It's really just tough. It is a tough, tough thing to go through. Um, and with get well with Julie, I do it exclusively online. So I, I don't, I don't see people in person at all. I see people over zoom, um, sometimes over phone calls, if they're having a hard time with, you know, like visual stuff, if light stimulation is hard for them being on a screen is hard, then we just have a phone call. Um, and I work with folks that way. Yeah. So Julie, you've really been generous with your time and all of your, all of your talents. And, uh, I'm going to make one final request of you before we let you go. Yeah. Uh, if God forbid your sister, uh, who has gone through this journey with you, um, came into your room right after you finished this podcast and she was suffering a tick bite, what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to deal with, um, deal with a second Lyme disease journey in her life? Yeah. So um, of course, the first thing we would do is remove the tick. And so I would get a plastic bag or a jar and I would use tick tweezers to get at the head of that tick and pull straight out with firm pressure to get as much of that tick out as possible. And I'd put that tick in that plastic bag or a little jar and I would send it away for testing. So you can, I've sent ticks away to technology and I've sent ticks away to hygienics. Those are both pretty reliable places to see what infections are in the tick. So we know that it's so much easier to test the tick than it is to test the human. Um, so that would be the first thing I would get the tick off of her and I would get the tick tested. Um, and then I would make sure that she gets in to see a doctor as soon as possible so that we can get her some antibiotics. Um, in the short term, I have got a stockpile of astragalus root on my, you know, at, you know, in my, my personal formulary that we probably all have at home. Um, and it's just a really good immune system booster. And, uh, I think it's 3000 milligrams a day that Buner's rec recommends for astragalus root for that short-term boost of the immune system to uh, make sure that if you do contract any infections that your body is prepared to handle them. And then monitoring, looking out for the bullseye rash, looking out for symptoms and making sure that she gets with a Lyme literate doctor, which we both have, so. Julie, we can't thank you enough for joining the Tick Bootcamp podcast. It was so fun. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Julie Yankovic. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Julie, please visit our Instagram page at GetWellWithJulie. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at TickBootCamp.com to view the Blueprint. Please note we'd appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast.
And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.